Welcome back, chatters. It's been almost a month since our last chatting episode with G-Baby. Uh, we're releasing this episode today on November 15th uh, because of a special. there's a special significance to it that Heinel will go into uh, during his episode. This was also an interesting episode um, because uh, the when he was here, we recorded this at night like we usually do, but we didn't want to go super long because we wanted to play some Overcooked, and also we had a wedding to drive to the next day, so we actually only recorded a little over 90 minutes. Um, but we actually created an epilogue, uh, or an addendum, if you will, of uh, about another hour afterwards, about three or four weeks later. So this is the first episode that's kind of, we had the initial chat, and then we come back and, and do a follow-up uh, chat later on, if you will. Um, this is probably going to be the last chat that is released for a little bit, uh, mainly because we have a new baby coming. Um, I don't have any other guests lined up. I don't have any other recordings kind of uh, sitting in the hopper. You know, this one's I've had, you know, it's loaded uh, and ready to go for about two months, just kind of waiting for November to roll around. And then um, when the date came out for the 15th that Hano suggested and there was significance to, to him for that, we, we settled on that date. Um, but as of now, I don't have anybody else uh, set to go. So it'll probably be... Uh, the new year before I get another episode out. I do have some other people that I've talked to outside of our friend group that I, I think would be interesting to talk to. So I will probably still do those episodes and release them and you're free to listen to them if you want. I definitely recommend you do because I'll always try and um, you know pick interesting people that have interesting viewpoints. Um, but just be prepared that this might be the last one for a little bit. Um, but that being said, it's still uh, two and a half hours. So it's still a good amount of time. So with that, uh, please enjoy our chat with uh, Chief Christopher Hine. live all right welcome to the castle it's been nice uh, visiting here uh, the last uh, 12 ish hours or so yeah and we've played at least four hours of overcooked i would say uh, about that yeah we 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 finished off the first game we beat the meatball man or whatever his uh -huh. name is who is also your avatar for my fantasy team this year yes yep. for hungry hungry i know um, hungry, hungry, Hino still very hungry this year through two weeks. Hungry for a win, huh? Yes. Uh, and then we've gone through about two and a half levels, maybe. Of I don't. The how, game I don't know how big the second game is. How many? It's same thing. Six worlds. Six worlds. So yeah. we're we're what through? We're halfway through world we're, three. We're a little more than a third of the way through. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, we're doing pretty well. I mean, like, well, we spent uh, only the only the maybe three or four retries through the uh, the first. Handful of yeah, levels. Usually, every level. Well, the, the easier levels we didn't have to retry, but like yeah, every so often we'd have to retry. Yeah, and then we'd nail it. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you could do this. I'm glad uh, you know the schedule lined up for you to come in. Um, yes, you know it helps keep me on my track of one a month. <laughs> you know, you're you're not going to be released till October, so people aren't going to hear this for a few more weeks. Okay, 
Hopefully that's okay with you. That's fine. Hopefully by then you will win. The 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 well, <laughs> we'll see about that. Uh, the anticipation will just be building for for weeks. Yes, I'm not. There are no idea what, you, what we talked about. Yes, yes. How are your gummy snacks? Have you had one yet? No, I'm gonna try one now. So yeah, so um, you know, typically we give guests mm-hmm. the uh, option of like a, a treat. You know, um, I think uh, mm-hmm. Wankoop was you know, I mean, talking to cookies um, with Gates. We had Fa. I think Mike wanted bourbon. Um, Gelch was the only one we didn't do because we were in his house. Um, but when I asked Hino what he wanted, he said gummy snacks. And I, thank, we have a giant box of them because we give them to Cam. Um, not every day, but like every other day because they're sugary. But uh, <laughs> so now, so we we took like what? Like how many packets did you put in there? Like Maybe five, four, four, five, four or five, and you just dumped them into a giant bowl. That way, so you don't hear me opening the wrapping the, or the, digging, the in, digging into the bag every time I go for one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I feel like there, there's there's probably two main topics that I really wanted to cover today. Obviously, we have a bunch of the the user submitted questions, but the main two things I wanted to talk about were obviously your sexuality and your your career because I feel mm-hmm. like those are two things that for the most part is going to be a little bit more rare in that you're uh, a gay man and you're a sports writer and there's probably not many many of those in, in the U.S. right now. Uh, that's correct and the few that there are I know some of them and you know there are some others who maybe aren't open or aren't out um, but I have so the ones, a few. So the ones that you know are out Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yes. Are they so people? So, okay, so people know. Yeah, people know who they are, and you know they've written about being gay sports writers before, and yeah. Have they, you ever written a piece on that, or? Oh yeah, multiple. You have. Okay. Yeah. I don't always read everything you write. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they were some of the big ones I wrote a. About uh, two and a half years ago at this. I point. think I remember the one you're talking about. I think I remember mm-hmm. you reading that one. So I, there was one where I f- first revealed where I was gay. And that came in March of 2016, where the whole incident at the NFL Combine happened, where a Falcons assistant um, asked Eli Apple if he was if he liked men. Right. And so that was the incident um, that prompted me first to write uh, that I'm a gay sports writer. And I and the reason why I did that was I wanted to say why this was such a bad question. Right. Because I, I, I don't think straight people Understand. understood. You know how that can make you feel, especially if you're closeted and gay, and you hear somebody say something to the effect of, "Oh, you know, you don't like men, do you? Because you know, we don't, we don't, we don't do that here." Right. You know, something along those lines, and, and how alienating that can feel. And then a few months later was when um, the person I was covering on the Blackhawks, Andrew Shaw, uh, used the anti-gay slur "faggot," mm. calling addressing it towards a referee. Uh, late in a playoff game, and that, and that was the other big yeah. piece that I wrote about being a gay sports writer. And I wrote, maybe, I wrote maybe a couple pieces since then, but those were the two big ones that got a lot of reaction. So, the, the, I mean, there, there obviously there are words out there that obviously are not politically correct, mm-hmm. and there are some that are crossing a line, mm-hmm. you know, for for someone who's who's a you know who's gay like yourself. Mm-hmm. But for you, it's about the the motivation, the emotion behind it, not the, so much the word itself. It's what the word represents. It's what the word represents, and it, it it's how it it's the impact of the word on those that hear it. Okay. So intent intent is different from impact. Okay. So Andrew Shaw, you know, in that instance, his intent may not have been to offend the gay community or you know anything like that. But mm-hmm. when when a closeted gay person hears somebody say that word 
it fills you with all sorts of dread. Right. And it makes you think that you could never be comfortable or come out uh, in front of these people, that you can never f fully be yourself. So for you, like for example, that, that question was, a, and obviously in that instance, that was a, meant to be a derogatory thing. But if a, a random person on the street were to stop you and they didn't know you and they said, hey, do you like guys? And they're, and they're, it's more of a, a curiosity or just a, a question, just understanding what your sexuality is. At that point, is that still not the... I mean, obviously, it's not the best way to ask that question. But for you, does that change the perception of it? Like, like if they use that word? Well, I'm not, well, I'm, not, I'm, not saying, I'm not talking about the word faggot. I'm saying, like, if they ask you that question, like, do you like guys... It all depends on the context. Okay. If we're having a, if we're having a conversation, and it comes up in the course of a con naturally in the course of conversation, which right. has happened before, I'm not offended by it, and okay. I'll answer truthfully. Have you have you been in conversations? Well, I, I'm sure the answer is yes. But mm -hmm. um, are there any conversations in your mind that stick out of people who, like, they were talking to you, and maybe they didn't know that you were gay, and then and then. The, through, the, through the course of the conversation, they, under, they understand and learn that you're gay. And have you had people like change their demeanor with you in the context of the conversation? Not really. Um, I think I think if if I sense that somebody might have a problem with me being gay, I don't reveal it. Okay. Um, Is it just based on their language they're saying, or how? Yes. Do you say yeah. It? Okay. It, it based on their language, based on what they're talking about. Um, I get I get a little uncomfortable when like when other guys talk about women in very overly sexist manners like okay. you know talking about like their their I'm gonna get some pussy feature. or yeah exactly okay. things like that um, because that's not the way that gays talk about each other getting some I mean sometimes yes okay <laughs> um, but. I don't know. It's 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 hard to explain. It, it's it's and it's it's that way in a lot of locker rooms too. The the alienating thing for gay athletes is not so much the homophobia that's in that's in locker rooms. It's the rampant sexism and in, in talking of, about women as if they're physical objects. objects. Right. And first of all. Gay men can't relate to that because they don't experience that. But Second they have. But it makes them uncomfortable because it makes them uncomfortable because because they they're not a part of that world. Right. But I mean, okay. Speaking as a guy, yeah, there have definitely been times where I've made like sexist mm -hmm. comments in terms of like thinking of like a woman as an object. But mm -hmm. for me, and again, I can't speak for all guys, but my my feeling would be that those talking points in terms of what people are saying it's being driven by the emotion of the feeling so on that level as a gay as a gay even though you can't relate to a female as an object you can't can't you relate to another guy as an object saying like i really need to go out and get some ass i mean like because that's what that's really what it's about right that it's happens, about yeah. so mm -hmm. so in that way you can relate you can but it's it's hard for me to articulate i never i i if i'm in a conversation where guys are talking like that about women i cannot participate in the conversation it's just an alienating feeling i can't explain it i can't okay give you a good well, I mean, reason yeah, why I mean, you're, you're not gonna like throw comments and be like oh yeah like i, I get that but i mean yeah. it to you you can't do it even okay here, here's what it reminds me of it reminds me of those conversations in high school that you have when you're like 14 15 and you're sitting around a lunch table and 
and that's a lot of the talk is about women and physical their okay. physical parts right. sex all that and stuff and you, you couldn't do and, that and it it, it, bring, it brings up right it brings up a feeling of like almost dread inside of you where it's like I, I have to try and participate in this conversation as best I can or else they're going to f- or else they're going to find me out. They're going to know that I'm gay. So right. I have to say something that I don't really believe like, "Oh yeah, look at her boobs" or, you know, something like that. Right. And it, it's it, it it brings up that feeling of, you know, okay, I have to do my best to hide who I really am in this situation. Hmm. I guess that's probably the best way I could put it. So, that being said, do you I I mean, I'm not going to say, do you agree with the Me Too movement, but do you agree with, like, the female empowerment mm-hmm. movement that's been happening because you feel that 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 makes those conversations less likely, therefore it's much easier for you to hold conversations and not feel like you're being put out? Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that, that that's hopefully one of the consequences of the Me Too movement. Okay. Um, yeah, it's I'm I'm on board with the Me Too movement. Do you um, do you feel like gays are lumped into that, or do you feel like they're still there's a, they're, they have their own barriers that they still? I, have to I think it's I think Kevin Spacey is probably the only really notable celebrity that has uh, been brought down uh, because of his behavior towards another man. I can't really think of another instance right where that happened. Um, but I think it's mostly towards it seems to be mostly towards women. It seems to be geared towards workplace sexual harassment or uh and things like that and do you feel like that's possible with only like Kevin Spacey being being the only celebrity obviously in his case it was improper but do you feel like given that the gay culture seems to be a little bit more I don't know I was blase the word like they're a little bit more open in terms of like uh, back in, uh, seeking out other partners and not necessarily as monogamous mm-hmm. and, and, and that sort of uh, frivolity do you feel like as a result, unless it's an improper action like Kevin Spacey, for the most part, if there's stuff going on between gay people, like it just that's just kind of the way things are. Therefore, it's not impro- it's not a bad thing. Whereas in in a in the male female relationship in a straight world, that's that can still be considered improper. You know, I I, th- I think in in some ways, yeah, I think that there are there are definitely differences. Like if you're in a gay bar, for instance, and getting getting groped in a gay bar is no big deal. Like, it's not like... Groped against your will. Right, right. If somebody, if, if somebody, you know, is walks by, beside grabs your ass, bar, grabs your ass, feels you up a little bit, it's, I don't want to say it's accepted, but it's like... You're not, checking out the goods? Yeah, it, it's not advisable. It's more, I don't do it myself. Right. Uh, none of my friends that are gay really do it. Has it been um, done to you? Um, from people that have been overly drunk, yes, it's okay. happened a few times. Um, and that did, it bothered you? Didn't bother? No, you? it didn't bother me because right. I hate to say it, but it kind of comes with the territory of going into a gay bar, right? Um, whereas if you do that to a woman in a straight bar, the consequences might be a little different, right? So, do you do you prefer going to gay bars for that reason? Because there's no. things are more open. Like you're more able to be your. I would say you're able to be yourself. No, that's not the mean way to say no, it. But like I, I, I honestly don't care whether I go to a gay bar or a straight bar. Okay. Um, Obviously, the behavior that people act is slightly different based on what you just said. Right. right. I mean, there are times where I want to watch sports in a straight bar. Right. I don't. You know, I don't watch sports in gay bars. <laughs> okay. Not a lot. Not a lot, at least. Right. Um, no, there's. Uh, yeah, there's no difference between straight and gay bars for me. There's, okay. I, I really don't care. There's a um, difference between straight and gay bars, but I get equal 
enjoyment out of hanging out in both arenas. Right. Do you, um, you know, obviously um, school was a little bit of a difficult situation for you, right? Yeah. When, and, and this may have been talked about in the past, but I'm going to rehash it for the purposes of this podcast, but mm-hmm. um, when did you first start realizing maybe you felt differently about from other, other most most guys where they prefer, start, they're attracted to right. women and you were attracted to, to other guys? Right about when I was about 14 in that age range. Okay, so yeah. before that, I, I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm throwing out a common story, right? Mm-hmm. But like, um, as a young boy... Um, I got hold of some of my dad's Playboys. Yeah, and you know looked at them, and that was a big thing. And obviously, our generation is different in that like internet wasn't really a thing, so that was really the only way you could explore your dad's sexuality that mm-hmm. way. Um, did you ever look at that stuff? And that did you ever look at those kind of magazines? And you didn't it didn't register with well, you? I didn't have I didn't have magazines. Okay, I had like you said, um, there was the very early version of internet pornography. Right. And that was what I looked at. Okay, and, and you were looking at girls or guys? I was looking at guys. Okay, so for you, so but so at one point you did look at girls, and you were like, I don't see this. Right, I was. More and then you saw a guy, and you're like, okay, yeah. So you, so you, so you. I mean, I mean, I don't say it was a young age, but it was a in your. Well, I, I, I well, you, you're going through puberty. I would say even younger than fourteen. I would say maybe even 12, 13. Is when you start felt felt. Like. So yeah. basically, as you're going yeah. through puberty, you're feeling this. Yes. And so you're exactly. going through school and middle school and even high school, and you. You sort of know that this is how you are, but you, like you said, just in a couple moments ago, where you have to sort of pretend to fit in, yeah, because you're afraid. Exactly, and you you grow up in a Catholic household, right? My parents very Catholic, go to church every Sunday, sent me to Catholic school, went to Notre Dame, family very religious, grandma, grandpa very religious, um, you know, my uncle on my mom's side. Now we don't know for sure if this is if this is true, but my uncle um, died of AIDS in the early '90s. Oh, my uncle John, my mom's brother, and we don't know for sure if he got it from a woman or if he got it from a man. He was married. Right. He was a successful attorney in Pittsburgh. Right. Contracted HIV. Contracted HIV, and within not much longer after that. Right. Um, passed away. It was like 1991. Okay. I have one very faint memory. Well, of you him. were. I was like what, five years five? old. Five. I mean, yeah. yeah so. I have one very faint memory of him over my grandmother's ca- house, grandma and grandpa's house, and I was sitting in a chair in the living room, and he was sitting over in another chair, and he just looked like death. Like right. He was wrapped in so many blankets. He was pale white. Yeah. Uh, that's the only memory I ever had of him, and sh- shortly thereafter he was dead. Um, so, but what I was told after this was after I came out. What I was told was that my grandmother and grandfather were so ashamed of his potential homosexuality that they didn't tell people that he died of AIDS. That he they made they made up another died story. of cancer. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, all this kind of you've had sticks repression, with you've you had a little bit. Built yeah, from you from the beginning. it sticks with you a little bit. So, growing up Catholic and and you know, to be honest with you, I don't think there was ever a time looking back on my childhood and teenage years where I was attracted to a woman. Right. Never. Growing up in a Catholic household, and again, I, I'm not a, an expert on the Catholic Church, but my, I, I vaguely remember that they basically were against. 
homosexuality. Well, the church official or they, or okay, they, the, well, the church, the church's official, official, official stance position, right. is homosexuality is okay. Just don't ever ever act on it. That's the church's official stance, which is but but back in the impossible. 90s growing up, you're more or less taught that it's a bad thing, I imagine, right? Right, because so, you can't act on it. How yes. did you how did you and acting on it is How a did you sin. reconcile the feelings inside of you? Did you feel like you were suppress them? You just suppress them. So you I suppressed them you until never had I was the feelings 19. like I'm I don't I'm not I'm I'm bad. I'm not a. I don't belong here. I shouldn't be alive. Nothing like that. I, I was in. You're... I was in denial. I tried to make myself fit in. Right. I tried to. All through my high school years, I just tried to tell myself that it was just a phase. Right. That okay, I'm. You know, I'm still young. I'm still developing. By the time I hit 18, 19, basically a, a, a switch is going to flip, and I'm going to be attracted to women. Right. I, I kind of that's how I got through high school is that I just told myself you, you that thought at, it was gonna. at some point this is gonna change. Right. I'm still growing, I'm still developing, I'm not an adult yet. And but when I become an adult, I'm gonna get attracted to women and I'm gonna get married and I'm gonna have kids, and I'm gonna do all that. Huh. Um, but then I got to college and it never Never happened. never switched for you. Yes, never switched. So uh, did you play any sports in high school? Yeah, I played basketball and baseball. Okay, so I assume in some instances there were you're changing around other boys. Did, were you checking out the other guys? Were there guys in your class that or other classes that you? And I say class, I mean like grades above right. and below that you were thought were uh, you were attracted to. Of course, there always is going to be. Um, I didn't want to check anybody out though because you didn't want to be. Caught. I don't want to be outed. Right. I didn't. That was you know deathly afraid of that. Right. That's a huge, huge motivating fear. Um, when you're in high school. Knowing what you know now, if you could go back and give yourself as a 12 or 14 year old advice, what would be like, what would be something you would say to, to make that okay? Or is that even possible? Because I think you can think of that you could go back and say to yourself, if someone had told you, whether it's, it's a future you or right. another gay person had told you at that young age to make things okay, is there anything you can think of that would have actually resonated? Well, I think, I think it's not just for reasons of being gay, but... And it's such a cliche. It's the it, the it gets better movement, but my life really did get better after my middle school and high school years. In college, yeah, starting with college, like like basically ever since I went to Notre Dame, my life has been I can I think pretty great. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I would just go back to twelve year old, thirteen year old me and say, just hang in there for a it little gets, while longer. It gets better. It's gonna. Mm-hmm. It's gonna. Things are going to turn around for you. Um, in Notre, at Notre Dame, did you meet any other? I was because obviously you were still closeted at Notre right. Dame. Mm-hmm. You, at this point, you know. Were you seeking out other gay people? I know that you didn't have your first relationship until after Notre Dame, right? Right. So, did you meet anybody else that you also found out were gay? Yes. Were there? I don't say secret clubs, but no. Were, was there a, gr- a group the of internet. people? It was the internet. So you found you found other people at Notre Dame that were gay through online forums, or Correct. okay, through an online dating and you, slash hookup site, and you met called pe- Manhunt. Yes. <laughs> okay. That's and what you it was and called. you and you you met them in person and talked, or it was more yes. of an online thing. Okay. Yes, it was. Uh, I met a couple people in person. Right. 
one of them lived in Fisher, my dorm. Really? Okay. Yeah, uh-huh. um, but were there there was no attraction. It was more of a just a, no, there a was, mutual there support. No, there was attraction. Okay. Uh, in some instances, uh, absolutely. But you you know you so you didn't hook up with them. You did. I did. Okay, so yeah. it just, you you hooked up with people at Notre Dame. It just wasn't a relationship thing. Right. Exactly. Did you? <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this. Um, Obviously, at Notre Dame, there was a rule about there's prietals, right? Women can't be in the dorm until after two. Right. I imagine that's not a problem for guys. Well, also, I wasn't staying over people's dorms. Okay, well, okay. Um, so that wasn't a that wasn't a thing. Okay. Um, the guy who lived in Fisher lived, you know. I don't. You have to get, you don't have to give anything away. I'm not. I'm, I okay. don't want to say who he yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, that, that's fine. Um, but people, I think I've told people before who he is. I just don't want to say. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, we don't know who's a podcast is going to be on the internet living somewhere. <laughs> yeah, Gout said um, the same thing. He doesn't want to put anything that's going to live. Right, right. Okay. So I'm not so for yeah, purposes yeah, of the guy, I'm not going to say his name. Call him, call him, um, I'm thinking of the, uh, Philip. Okay. I'm trying to think of a random name. Well, this guy, let's just call him this guy. He lived in the dorm, so it was very easy, like, whenever we wanted to get together. Um, he lived in a single, okay. which was helpful. Um I had roommates. Right. Uh, he was a senior when I was a sophomore, um, and that's when we met. Okay. And he had a single in the dorm. And so you could just go over and you guys could hook up. Yes. Okay. So that we didn't do it often. Okay. It didn't. Was it often. was it like a booty call type of thing? Like niche. It was very late at night. Yeah. It was when nobody else was around the dorm. Um, you know, he would before I would like go into his room. He would come out in the hallway, like look Check both ways, out. make sure it was all right. And then okay. Yeah. See, I, I guess I guess you know I, I knew that you didn't have a relationship with laughter. I guess naively I thought you basically went through all of Notre Dame, like knowing that you were gay, but not having the experience of a gay person. So it actually makes me kind of happy to hear that you actually. I mean, I wouldn't call it great experience. <laughs> it's not like it's not like <laughs> I you know was what? dating openly and right. Was but I just mean in terms of like going your quad. Right. I just I just mean yeah. in the sense of like you know you're gay, yeah. but you're not able to experience being a gay person. Like what it right. means to be gay. Well, I, I, I would say you know that was that was important, but but it, those experiences as shady and as awkward and as weird as they were were still important because. It was the first time I had ever acted on being gay, and, and, was, and you realized afterwards that it was okay, and yeah, yeah. and you and it made you feel good, obviously. It did, and it it, it almost was like it was just, you know, no pun intended. It was a release, like it was yeah. like okay, like Nothing, I'm, finally, I'm not lit on like, fire. I'm not right, but no, it's it's just like okay, there, there, I've, I've, the I've thought about head. this. Well, not 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 even from a denial standpoint, oh, okay. but just like wanting. You know, always wondering what it was going to be like when you were fourteen, and you know, fantasizing about about other men, and having a, and finally right. having it come to fruition was right. like a huge burden off right. my shoulders. Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, in some ways, that experience obviously mm-hmm. a little bit later for you with that being in college, mm-hmm. but it's no different than the experience that straight people have when they're trying to sneak around and hook up. You know, and and maybe they start a little bit younger because it's a little bit easier for them. Mm-hmm. Right, um, right. But in, in in middle school and high school, it's the same. It's the same, you know, exhilarating sort of thing. So I I, I can completely. It is without to without that. the fear of societal rejection. Though, right. You know, I hundred percent, hundred percent agree. But I'm just saying, like, at least in that way, you experienced adolescence that that the sexual adolescence. Right. Which um, is why you know, um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, um, gay people. Because a lot of a lot of people have had similar experiences to me, where you don't really start your, I guess, 
sexual exploration until later right in a lot of instances and so it makes it hard to really date when you're in your 20s for instance right because you're still kind of like you know feeling your oats as they say Uh uh-huh and so it makes it a little difficult. Would you, uh, would you, obviously, no, again, I'm asking a retrospective question, mm-hmm. but knowing what you know now, mm-hmm. would you ever have come out as gay at Notre Dame? Or yes. just given the way things are there, temper, uh, temperament wise, but you I would yes. have come out to our group of friends. Easily. Oh, it's our group. Okay. Yes, definitely. Were you scared to come out to our group of friends? Yeah, there was definitely some fear. Okay. Um, obviously, it was, it was unfounded fear. Right. Um, and you know, I had a feeling when I ultimately did come out that everybody would react as they did. Um, so, but you never know. Like it's it's hard to explain when you're when you're inside your own head for years and years, and you're wondering what people are gonna say and right. what are your parents gonna say. Like you build up the moment you come out as like it's the most important moment of your life. Right. There's nothing I do the rest of my life that's gonna be as important as what I did coming out. Right. The rest of my life is gravy. Because um, you've yeah. done the... Because I've done the The thing. hard thing. I've done the thing that I never thought I could do for the 22 years up until I did it. Right. So for you, that, 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 that's courage everywhere now. Right. Of anything it's, you're it's, afraid of. You can go balls to the wall in anything you do in life. There's right. no... I, I feel no shame, no sense of embarrassment, right. no nothing. Because, hey, if everybody accepts me as being gay, then great. Like, I can do anything. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, and your parents took it okay, obviously. Yeah, yeah, they did. Um, you know, I'm very fortunate in that. Did sense. they have any idea? Because you hear stories about gay people who were like parents they knew. I don't know if they always knew. Um, you have to ask them. Um, <laughs> but they seemed surprised when I told them. Um, and. You know, I think it was a little a little different at first for them getting used to kind of seeing me in this new light. Right. Um, but they were always supportive. They were always had my back. They always, you know, made sure to tell me they loved me. And what more could you ask for out of that? And I do think, you know, yep. with my father, who's, you know, my best friend, it was a little, maybe a little difficult for him from the religious aspect of it. Right. My dad and his, my dad was raised by his mother to be a very God-fearing Catholic. Right. They, you know, he kind of believes in God the Punisher as opposed to the loving God right. of the New Testament. Right. Um, you know, and his mother kind of brought him up that, you know, you better do this, this, and this or you're going to go to hell. You know, make sure you go to church or you're going to go to hell. Right. You know, th- that kind of, that kind of upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I and he pulled me aside one day um, in the car. This was maybe about a year or so after I had come out, and we were driving to my brother. My brother had a track meet, and we were driving to his track meet. And you know, he said, "Chris, I love you. You're my son, no matter what. But I worry about your soul." Basically, like, I'm worried. I said I translated for him. I'm like. I'm like, you're worried I'm gonna go to hell when I die, right? Because I'm because you're because gay. I'm gay, yeah. And I said, I said, look at it this way, Dad. I said, I said, straight people have sex outside of wedlock, mortal sin. They use birth control, mortal sin. They get divorced, mortal sin. They have kids outside of marriage. That's not exactly you know 
uh, smile the tone, yeah. right? Right. I said, uh, you know, we have all these things, but yet we accept it in society, even though there's still sins in the church. I said, how does being, being gay, gay any different, different from from this? Right. You know, and and then I said, Were you preparing for that? Were you prepared for that conversation, or little, that was off a the little cuff? bit? Okay. I was. Uh, it, it, a lot of it was off the cuff because I wasn't expecting it to come at that moment. Okay. It's like I had lines rehearsed in my head. Um, but then I then I said to him, I said, "You're the most religious person I know, Dad." I said, "And it's not going to be heaven for you if I'm not there with you." So I said, "You're my card into heaven." <laughs> so, oh, that won him over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. When did you? Obviously, it's 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 uh, known within our circles that you prefer um, black eyes. Yes. Was that and also my own gay friend circle? Right. Was yeah. that also from a young age, or did that just develop over time? How how did that come about? Um. Yeah. One of the first guys I was ever attracted to was Usher, the singer Usher. Okay. Um, yeah. Also attracted yeah. to other white entertainers like Justin Timberlake was a big one for me okay. growing up. Um, but yeah, Usher was the was was one of the main ones I had a big crush on growing up. Never admitted it, of course. Right. Um, and uh, you know, it just it just kind of developed that way over time. It's 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 hard to explain. Actually, I had a I had a friend in I had a friend visit me in Minneapolis this past weekend. Uh, he's a he's a gay friend of mine from Chicago. He's black. Right. And we were actually talking about that, and he's and he said, and I never really thought of this. He's like, he's like, you know, race is a social construct, but the actual physical features of of black men, it's like, it's almost like you prefer somebody who prefers blonde women or redheads or oh yeah, something like yeah, that. yeah. He's like the the race thing is just something society puts on it. Yeah, you just have you have an attraction to a certain set of physical features right. on human beings. The race thing is just what society puts on, and I'm like, you know what? I never thought of it like that. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes a lot of well, sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Hmm. And he said, and he said, if you were just, he said he would have an issue with it if I was just exclusively attracted to black guys. But you, but I'm not. You just, you happen to like more black guys, and they happen to like me back. Is okay. I think an important part of that conversation. Okay. Because most white gay guys that I'm attracted to are only attracted to. Very muscular, ripped, toned, or either what's called twink, very skinny guys, and I do not fit any of those boxes. What box do you? I know those. I am. I am probably what is considered a bear. Yes, even though I'm not hairy, but I'm bigger. Right. So that's what I would fit into. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. But in my experience, black guys, mixed guys. They they seem to appreciate you know guys of all shapes, shapes and sizes so right you know, I appreciate them for that. <laughs> um, I feel weird saying this, but I feel like that's that seems to be a a common thing for black guys that are either gay or straight. Maybe I mean I don't uh, I don't want to delve into stereotypes or anything. Well, I, like I know that, that's but, where uh, I'm, I'm. I didn't mean to leave us there, but that's yeah. Like when you said that. Oh, I keep eating these gummies. I don't know which ones I'm eating. They all taste the exact same. They do. Even the I think it's a carrot, purple, orange, and red ones all taste the same. Yeah. Um, but that's just you know, it's just the way my life has been. Right. And you know, it's it, 
that's who is attracted to me. It's who I'm attracted to, and I'm not going to say no. Yeah, of course. You know, so. Um, do you, uh, so now you, you, you're at a point where you've had a bunch of relationships. I don't say a bunch, but you've, no, you've had a, a few. bunch. You've had a few. I would, I would say I've had three relationships. And what was the shortest? What was the longest? Um, two were roughly equal in length. Okay. They were very short. Um, the one with uh, Chris from San Diego mm-hmm. lasted, uh, I want to say maybe like five months, five-ish, five-ish months, six months. Okay. Um, and then my very first relationship also lasted in the range of about five, six months. Okay. Um, and then the one I had with Chris Maxwell uh, lasted about a year and a half. Okay. I think, yeah. There's a couple tracks I want to get down here, but uh-huh. um, first I'm going to talk about, so... Mm-hmm. Obviously, with gay culture being much more open in terms of monogamy, how, how do you define a relationship with it? Is it just, I mean, this is not doing me my boyfriend, doing me my girlfriend. Like, what is, how, what is the marker for a relationship in gay culture? It's very fluid. Okay. Kind of as you, kind of as you explained. Um, there are plenty, I know plenty of couples who are in open relationships. Right. It, it almost has become the norm. From what I've seen, right, especially people that have been together for a long time, right. Most people like that are not in open relationship, or they are in open relationships, right. And that's one of the reasons why they think they they've made it work is because they allow each other to either bring other guys home into their bedroom or have their own individual playtime with other guys. So, but they still come home to each other at the end of the night, right. So, is it fair to say that? It, and again, obviously, I'm, I'm not trying to put everyone in the same box, but in terms of what is a relationship, our relationship is when you're you're only dating one person, but you're still able to have other partners. If you, if you are open, well, I, I do know couples that are monogamous. Monogamy is not dead in the gay culture, right? Um, I just think the relationship is more loosely defined in the gay world than in the straight world. Straight world, I don't know anybody who's in an open relationship. Um, Gay culture, I know at least half of the couples I know I would estimate are in some kind of open arrangement. Do do you have any... I have a theory behind that. Well, that's what I was going to get to. Because obviously... Guys are always thought of as horn dogs, right? And, and right. guys are, but I think they're sexual beings that I just want goes, sex all the time. I think so. it goes deeper than just guys are horn dogs. Though. So this, this yeah. is my theory. So throughout the course of human history, being gay has been shunned mm-hmm. by m- most societies. It's had to live underground, um, and that often takes on the form of not being in relationships of of promiscuity random right getting it where you can getting it where you can right you know and so you you come up in this world and it's kind of embedded in the gay culture you know hook up with as many guys as you can anonymous sex all these things right and we are at a point in time for the first time in human history where being gay is actually in some corners of the world in some corners of the united states finally socially acceptable right we're now trying to normalize gay relationships and so now we're trying to put uh heterosexual norms onto homosexual relationships okay and now marriage for instance so you've had you've had a culture that has developed one way for centuries and now 
in 2018 now all of a sudden you're gonna try to put the brakes on it and reverse it and make it go the other way right well it's not gonna happen overnight it's gonna come in fits and starts right especially when you know the millennial generation people like me in their 30s and guys who are older than me um, you know they came up another way right I know I know uh, Jake is more friends with these guys back in Chicago than I am but he has a couple of older gay friends in Chicago who were married with kids before they ever came out hmm. and they're in their 50s let's say maybe early 60s was um, that for them like a repression denial thing as well or I it think was so. just and, and they just did know, the they did the societal norm yeah, thing exactly. and secretly led this I life think it's all that yeah. it all it all plays into that um, so that's why I think you know we still have a lot of promiscuity in the gay community because hmm. now we're trying to fit where we didn't fit before the the and, and well i guess my next point would be or my next question would be like, do you feel like you should have to fit why are, are, are you comfortable with the idea of the the way heterosexual relationships exist being the same for or can it just be that gays can have their own way of having I think everybody should do whatever the hell they want yeah. I don't care if, you, if you're a straight couple and you want to have an open relationship go for it yeah if you want to be pansexual go for it if you want to have be in a be in a gay monogamous relationship go for it right. you know like do whatever the hell makes you happy makes your partner happy as long as everybody's happy and safe and, and you know Good. Well, so that's also a topic I wanted to get to, but mm -hmm. I will, I will, I will remember to come back to that. But the, in okay. terms of your, your relationships, you said two five months, one like a year and a half. Yeah. What ultimately led to those relationships not working was that you just you guys were fighting. You just said, you guys distanced. You didn't realize you just realized you wanted with other people. The first the first was relationship the, was uh, incompatibility as people. Okay. Um, I, I, I just uh, to put it mildly, I uh, we just. He just was not the kind of person I wanted to hang around with every day. And as we started to date each other, that became more and more apparent to me. Right. So I ended it. Okay. Um, with Chris Maxwell, the one that was a year and a half, that one was, I think, we just kind of, um, we weren't physically attracted to each other anymore. And so we ended it. Okay. Uh, we weren't really having sex or anything like that towards the end of that relationship. And do you think that's why you're still able to be friends? Yes, because that be the, our compatibility was never the issue in that relationship, um, but it was the uh, it was the intimacy of hmm. it. And thirdly, um, Chris in San Diego, it was just the distance. Right. Um, and he, I was doing okay with it. He wasn't. And so he said, well, I can't do this anymore. Gotcha. And called it off. Okay. So the, that's why those three ended. And again, another situation where he and I have remained friends because personality-wise, we got along great. Right. It was just so, circumstance. Yeah. Um, are you dating anybody now? Nope. Are you Obviously, you're looking. Nope. Or not nope. looking. Right now, you're just... I'm done looking. Okay. So it'll happen when it happens. I think the last year and a half to two years, I have just stopped. I'm just frustrated. Um, with trying to find too much or? effort okay. for very little in return, right. and especially now, starting a new beat, my my dating life can inter can interfere with my work life. Right, it can be very hard to separate the two at times. Right, when you have to do something for work, but you also have to be, you know, an attentive boyfriend or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
there is a decent amount of overlap there, unfortunately, especially being a beat writer when you're working nights and weekends. Right. So that's your prime time usually. And I can't afford to be distracted, especially in my first year on a new beat. So yeah. for the foreseeable future, I don't anticipate me getting into any kind of relationship. Okay. Well, I, I, de I definitely do want to transition into your job, but mm -hmm. I want to stay on, on your sure. sexuality a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, in the heterosexual community, if you're having sex, you know, promiscuously or not, typically you, there's the whole, you know, wearing a condom and then women have birth control. Right. Is there something of the equivalent in the ma male culture? Uh huh. Um, I've recently been seeing these commercials for Truvada. Truvada. Mm -hmm. So is, is that the equivalent? That is the magical prep pill. So walk me through. All right. Prep is basically if you take prep, you go on prep. Prep is um, a pill. Prep is a pill. Okay. Um, if you take it, uh, and it, as long as you're consistent taking it, the odds of you contracting HIV, even having unprotected sex with somebody who's infected with HIV, are basically zero. It is basically the magical HIV pill wow. that prevents you from getting it. How? How? I Just... don't know the mechanics of it. Okay. Uh, I have friends who are on it. Right. Um, it's supposed to be used in tandem with condoms because it is not a hundred percent right foolproof. So it's, it's recommended in the gay community, and I, 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 sorry, I keep saying it that way, but it's recommended in your culture as well to practice safe sex with a condom. Yes. Okay. Generally, that has been the case. I imagine but, that's but, not. But I'm getting to okay. it <laughs> because of the prep pill, which has really come onto the scene in the last, I would say, two plus years. Um, more and more guys on like dating apps and things like that do not want to have sex with a condom. They right. only want to have what's called bareback sex. Right. Um, and that's a little disturbing for me. And if I see that, and like I immediately just delete that guy from right from uh, any chance of dating and or potentially hooking up with him because I don't I don't do that. Right. It's not my style. And now Truvada. You, is a different pill from the prep pill? Truvada is prep. It is prep. Yeah, it's, it's just a, it's a prep. it's a new version of it, or well, I think that's just the company or whatever okay. that they named it. Gotcha. Um, I don't take it. I just use condoms. Yeah. So I do have friends that are on it, but yeah, I don't think it's for me. When you when you watch historical, I don't say historical. Um, when you mm -hmm. watch. And why is the name of it escaping me? Um, when you watch movies or TV shows that deal with gay culture, do you feel like they generally are accurate, not accurate in terms of the way they, rep they present it? Or, um, I mean, it all depends on the show. Um, you know, I would say, like, I guess I was a little, you know, it's interesting. I was watching the Emmys the other night. And the five guys from the new Queer Eye for the Straight Guy came mm -hmm. out to present an award. Right. And I almost found myself a little disappointed because... They steer into their stereotypes. Right. They were so over the top mm -hmm. in their presentation and they turned the, the gayness up to 11. Right. That I was like, you know, as somebody who isn't like that, you know, I, I almost feel like in some ways there can be, a, there can be caricatures of gay... Right, and it could be gay men themselves providing the caricatures, um, you know. 
I would like to see somebody on TV who, you know, kind of is like me, where it's like, you're, you don't really show it, you don't flaunt it, you, you walk down the street, you wouldn't know that that person's gay, and I don't see that a lot. When you see gay characters on they, TV they, movies, they're out and they're out and flamboyant. Right. And, well, know. I mean, in terms of those archetypes that you see, right, so obviously you have... Uh, I, I, maybe pioneer is the wrong word, but you have like uh, Will and Grace, right? So you have Jack and you have Will, who are mm-hmm. you know you have one who's like super flamboyant right. and out there, and one who's a little more reserved, right? And then as you we've moved through culture, there have been all sorts of different facets. Um, do you feel like you don't really align with most of those? Because I mean, you said it yourself that you're not really, mm-hmm. you know, you're not you're not necessarily a fashion forward. Right, right. You're, mm-hmm. for you, you know, you're into sports. You're into a lot of what most people consider are straight activities. Activities, interests, yeah. So, yeah. do you feel like you fit into one of those archetypal roles, or nope. as a, so you're just sometimes I do feel like a bit of an outsider in the gay community. But there, but you, you're, there's no way you're the only person like that, right? No, I'm not. So, is it difficult to find other people that are similar to you? The amount of gay guys I know that like sports is very small. So that's that that thing that actually does hold true. Yeah, mm-hmm. most guys I I speak to and have gone on dates with or have been with they they can't relate to sports. They don't know what it's like to play fantasy football or right. You know, root for your college football team. It's you know they just so that really does relate. give you a unique perspective. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Have you ever? And most of my gay friends do not like sports. They don't watch sports or really don't watch sports. Jake. What do they... For instance, doesn't really watch sports. What do they do for fun? I feel like that's a stupid thing to say, ask. Um, like, what, what are their activities? Um, well, they like to go out, hang out with friends, party, dance, drink, have fun, watch Netflix on their low-key nights, you know, just like anybody else. Um, go to dinners, go to art shows go to plays you know concerts whatever do you just know sports does any, <laughs> does any part of you wish you that you uh, you liked fashion or art no or, no or or i guess where i'm where what i really mean is, is does any part of you do you do you wish that you had more creative uh, in that sense i feel like i'm a pretty creative person yeah i, I create not the right word already. but you like but <laughs> You're creative uh, in terms of a wordscape, right? But not creative in and terms musically. of and musically, yes. Mm-hmm. But I, I just meant in terms of like like doing art or doing, and I mean art in the traditional sense of like not painting, really, drawing, really. I, I like, fashion. I like how I turned out. I don't, I don't, I don't wish that I was more into fashion or wish that I was into sculpture or painting or anything like that. Okay. And and my gay friends really aren't into that. You know, it's not like they're going to the museum every week and studying sculptures, right? Or, Setting paintings. It's not how. It's not how they roll. Um, I uh, no. I I I feel all right. Just just how I turn out. When did you When did you start writing? When did you know that that was something that you liked doing? I mean, obviously, I know you worked at the newspaper at Notre Dame. You became editor, but mm-hmm. were you on the high school newspaper as well? Was the high one? school newspaper? So was it? You started that at Notre Dame, and mm-hmm. it, you, that passion has continued. Yep, that's exactly it. I, I got sucked into it at Notre Dame. Gotcha. Did you have you ever written anything um, fiction? Have you written stories, short stories? I mean, back in like you know English classes and things like that, I wrote short stories. But like, I don't sit down now or like and like compose fiction. Okay. Actually, it's a good question. I never, 
I can't remember the last time I wrote something that was fictitious in nature. Yeah, something that's not yeah. for work. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. or or in our case, NSA. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you did this in Notre Dame, and mm-hmm. it was just you enjoyed the process of. You know, enjoy writing, s- editing, getting it out there on a deadline. What was what was really? Yeah, I, I always enjoyed um, reading the newspaper growing up, um, and thinking that it would always be cool to have my name in the newspaper. Okay. Um, so that was kind of the driving force behind that. I always loved writing. My plan was, you know, I was going to go to Notre Dame. I was going to major in history, major in poli sci pursue my doctorate in one or one of those fields potentially Hmm. and be a professor and write books that was my initial goal upon entering notre dame right and then journalism at what point did that change when i became sports editor okay halfway through sophomore year that was when it was like oh they're serious and i should get serious about it right and then i entered the journalism program and i got internships and I've just been riding that wave ever since. Right. So for you, sports writing kind of melded the fact that you really like sports and this this new passion of yours. Yeah. Did you, did you ever write other types of uh, content? Um, I, I would write like you know about music and TV shows from time to time, but sports was always the the main my main ticket into the journalism world. Um, I want to I want to get this out there because. I feel like for a long time, I I didn't judge you correctly in terms of when you first told us you were gay, you know, my first reaction was like, that makes a lot of sense, right? But then I, one of like my immediate next thoughts was like, oh, well, he likes Carol King, of course. And obviously that's a really <laughs> narrow-minded view. You didn't like Carol King because you were gay. You just like Carol King because you're musically inclined and you like music. Yeah, and and so you were attracted to to that talent of it. I don't think you have to like Carol King or to be gay to like Carol King. No, I know, I, I know that I know. My, I'm not. That's not coming across the right way. I, I just mean in terms of like I don't even know how I don't even know who she was. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. it's, it's it's that's what that's really what I so so I wanted to take the the chance to apologize to say like I I I, I boxed you. It's okay. So, um, okay. So back to back to, mm-hmm. to to writing. So you're you're sports editor now. Eventually, you become editor in chief. Was that was the process of editing something that you enjoyed, or did you know that like once you got into the workforce, you wanted to be person writing copy, not the person editing? I wanted to be the writer. I'm editor in chief. I mean, yes, you're editing stories, but editor in chief mostly. Um, is you're kind of in charge of what is in the paper, right? Not so much you're editing every single story. Okay, so like you're, you're like you're you're, the... you're kind of like dictating. Here's what we should cover. Here's what we should play up on the oh, okay. on the front cover of the paper. You know, this is what we should be doing. You know, all these. That's the job of the editor in chief. It's not to pour over every single word. Right. It's to more dictate who should be covering what. What sh- what should we be covering as a paper? And how do we emphasize our and rank kind of not rank, but like prioritize it when we put the paper together. Mm-hmm. That's the job of the editor in chief. I see. Partially, um, but you still preferred writing. I love writing. Yeah, I did not want to be an editor. I did not get into journalism to be an editor. Right. Who? Well, who does? Are there people that do? Uh, some people do. They some really, people are very good at it. Yeah. Some people are very good at 
at taking something somebody wrote, editing it, and really improving it. Um, hmm. And I enjoy that process when I work with a good editor um, who kind of gets you and can improve your, your writing. Um, we talked about this a little bit at launch because I sort of asked you, like, what's the next step? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, obviously, you know, talking about moving from one sport to another sport is, is one conversation. Mm-hmm. What about in terms of, like, the chain of command? You know, what is the next? If you, if you did want to move up within, let's say, your organization, where do you go next? Is it possible to work your way up? Would you want to yeah. do that? The next step at, a, at major newspapers, outside of being a major beat writer, is to be a columnist. Okay. Um, so you get paid to, for your opinion, or you could still do feature stories if you want. Um, that's the next step. And that includes usually a significant bump in salary. Okay. And you get your name out there a lot. Most columnists in major cities have some sort of radio deal as well. And so they make money off of their, off of their radio deals. So you can make, you know, I want to say maybe in the neighborhood of about $200,000 wow. up a year as a columnist. Huh. So, and that's, I, I don't know, I don't know all the numbers. Um, right. Obviously, the bigger the market, the more money you can make. Right. And now um, when you say, col- is it columnist focusing on a particular genre like sports? Or is it when col- you're a columnist, it's yeah, just you're what, a sports columnist, but you can write whatever the hell you want about about whatever you want. You could say, I'm going to go cover the Vikings today. I'm going to go cover the Twins tomorrow. I'm going to go cover the Timberwolves on Thursday. Cool. You, know, you can do whatever the hell you want. You can write whatever the hell you want. And... That's that's the freedom of being a columnist, huh? And you, and that, that's, that would be of interest to you. That would be of interest to me. Yeah. Is that a seniority thing? Like it's just as usually, you get older, yes, or usually you have to kind of. There's not a lot of twenty year old, twenty five year old, thirty year old columnists right across the country. It's usually reserved for people who have worked beats before, who have proven themselves mm-hmm. over a decent amount of time. Usually, when you start to get into your maybe mid to upper thirties, early forties. That's when you kind of become eligible to be a columnist in that in that mm-hmm. kind of range. Um, very rarely does it happen at, at thirty-one, for right. instance. I don't I don't know anybody who's thirty-one and is a columnist at a major newspaper. It just right. doesn't happen. Okay, so then what's after columnist? If you that's decide it. to that, that's that's maxing out at the newspaper is being in terms a of in terms of content generation. Right now, if I wanted to advance my career other ways. If I prove myself well enough on the NBA beat, for instance, I could go work for a national outlet like ESPN or Sports Illustrated or a bigger paper like, you know, the New York Times or a New York market, maybe the Washington Post. Um, You know, that would be kind of the next step, another next step that could follow. Right. Um, And yeah. I really liked what I was doing before, though, because I did have a lot of freedom to write whatever I wanted. Right. Um, I wasn't a columnist. But you you were in terms of the content you could write. Right. I was... Just, I, I can <laughs> write, I'm like, I'm going to write a baseball story today. I'm going to write a basketball story tomorrow. Right. I, I had to fit it within a certain purview right. of, of the, analytics, of the analytics. and enterprise, um, but, but I had a lot of freedom, and it wasn't... It was very stress-free. Hmm. Because I wasn't chasing breaking news and trying to develop sources and, and all that BS. Right. Um, so I did enjoy that. 
Um, how do you become uh, manager of the right word? How do you edit, how do you become an editor or a person? I don't want to be an editor, but I'm just, I'm just asking. It just let's let's just say, <laughs> I just in, in turn, let's say you like what is what is the the progression there if you wanted to be in charge of content? Um, you express an interest in it. You you see, you know. They'll see how well you can edit stuff, how well you write headlines, how well you you know do things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was a copy editor for a year and a half in Chicago against my will, right? Um, but I did it for a little while, and but if you prove yourself at it, I mean, they'll they'll notice you, and then you can rise up. So that uh, uh, that's a com- that's a completely different it's a completely career different track. track. Yes, right. Yes, okay. Is. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Um. So you know, obviously, uh, the Star Tribune brought you yes. to Minnesota to do the analytics, but or no, sorry, they they, they created they created the position right for you because they wanted you as a writer. Yes. So was, and the plan for them was always to move you to a beat when it opened up. I don't think so. Okay, they just no. wanted your talent. They really liked me. Yes. Okay. And they wanted me in the building. Um, and that analytics thing was something. It's still go. It's still happening at the paper. There's just no dedicated writer to that beat. Could right you now. throw self filming at that if you wanted to? Yeah. Still? From a basketball angle, absolutely. And it'll get the tag that we created, the North Score tag. Okay. So it'll be labeled as such in the paper that this is an analytics piece. That's That, that didn't die right. with me going to the ba- to the basketball Well, that's beat. good. Um, no, they just really, I think, I think in the process of interviewing me for their open hockey position... Um, they really liked what I brought to the table, and when they gave it to, they gave the hockey job to someone else, uh, my friend Sarah. Um, they said, "Well, we really want to create this position, and we really want you for it because we really like you." Right. So that was flattering. Right. It was great. Yeah, it was the first time in my career that I finally was able to kind of make a significant step forward. Right. Would you prefer? I mean, obviously, it's retrospective, right? Because knowing what you know now, but would you have preferred to have gotten the NHL job because that was already something you were doing with the Blackhawks and that was a world that you knew? No. No? no. So you're... I was, I was thrilled to get this analytics job as okay. opposed to the NHL job. I'm like, I'm like, I got passed over for the NHL job, but then I ended up getting a better job. How does that happen? You know? <laughs> right. Okay. Um, I, was th- I was thrilled. Um, but covering the NBA is not a bad deal either. Uh, well, yeah, right. Um, mm-hmm. We talked a little bit today in the car on the ride home, but I want to kind of talk about it again here, which mm-hmm. is walk me through the process of, obviously, as a beat writer, you have to develop sources. You have to report on breaking information. Obviously, this we're having this conversation, you know, within a few days, within 72 hours of the Jimmy Butler trade request. Trade request. Yeah. So walk me through, just give me highlights of, like, what your past... You know, two days of because I know that I know it's been very. Uh, it's been running into a lot of brick walls. Very frustrating for you. Yeah. Obviously, you're you're brand new in the position. Right. Nobody so, knows who the hell I am. No agents. No people in the front office of the Timberwolves. Right. Thibodeau barely knows who I am. Right. Um, Butler, Jimmy Butler certainly doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have no relationship with anybody in the NBA as it stands right now. Right. And. So when I reached out to the few phone numbers that people gave me, I was getting no answer back. Right. So I'm just kind of flailing in the wind here, trying to confirm information and 
being unsuccessful at it and it was just it was very it was it's been a very hard week professionally do you feel like if this if if you'd been in this position a few months a few months earlier where you were writing stories and you had it, things would become easier and it's just the fact that you're just so brand yeah, new yeah exactly and you know and every writer will tell you that it's and I, I had dinner with a friend of mine uh, Greg who works at Sports Illustrated and and he was I don't want to say he was like like trying to pat me on the back and saying there there it's going to be okay but like he's like he's like of course like it's your first week on the job nobody's going to talk to you like mm-hmm. they don't know who the hell you are right you know you got to build relationships and he's like you know, I work for the New York Times and he worked for the New York Times covering the Jets he's like you know it took me two three years before I started really feeling comfortable around there it takes a it's it sometimes takes years before you're finally comfortable mm-hmm. and you feel like you know enough people to to get you you know to answer your phone calls, to answer your text messages. But you you um, had that with the Blackhawks. I did. Uh, and I really felt like in my third season, I was really starting to make strides. Right. And I had met some agents throughout the league as well. I had one agent friend who was a great source for me. And how did I develop that source? I reached out to him. I got his contact info. I saw that he was based in Chicago. And I said, hey, I'd love to... You know, just grab a bite with you for you know if if you ever get a chance for lunch. And he was he was very receptive to it. Okay. Like, yeah, let's grab lunch. And you know, we ended up going to lunch and chatting for maybe over an hour. Okay. And he became one of my really good sources. So so sources are really just people that you you befriended that they know they know you you have a you know you they they may have a, a vested interest in your um, you know your career. Yeah. It, it, but it's really just someone who you're friends with who's saying like you know t- just just telling you what's going on and uh, well and in some cases that's what a source could willing be. to go uh, on other cases or not. a lot of cases you know sources are not what I would say friends they're more professional it's more professional okay yeah um, he I, I would say that that he and I were very close to being friends okay uh, over the two plus years that I knew him. Mm-hmm. Um, how often would you interact with them? This is the agent we're talking about, right? Yeah. How yeah. often would you interact with them? How often would you get a bite to eat or you know talk or? Uh, we we would meet up for lunch. I'd say every couple of months at the very least. Okay. I always stay in, I always stay in touch with them like through texting. He would come to a decent number of Blackhawks games, right. so I would you know sometimes see him in the press box right. and, and chat with him there. Um, and he was great. He was he was really good to me. Um, and. Uh, you know, I need to find that in the NBA. Right, right. <laughs> I need to find a couple people. I mean, like so that. is is one of the first things you're doing now, mm-hmm. and and obviously this is your first week. Mm-hmm. But are you going to just start reaching out to all these agents, yep. all these people, saying, "Hey, yep, this is me. Can we grab lunch? Can we do this? Can we do that?" Yep. It's, exactly. It's, it's, you're just basically sending out all these communications out into the void, hoping you're getting a. You're reeling them hoping, out, hoping, hoping you're getting. Some, hoping I get a few people to bite. Right. Absolutely. I'm not expecting everybody to say yes, but yeah. I hope at least some people do. Do you go for the top tier guys like Carl Anthony Towns? You go for everybody. Okay. You go. You go for Towns. You go for, you know, the rookie draft pick who just got picked. You mm-hmm. know, you go for him and his people, and you know, you just develop as many as you can and, and try to figure it out. You um, you talked earlier today about the concept of. Um, information dealing or information brokering. Yeah. Can you talk me, just walk me through that again of like how that process works in terms of interacting with a source versus being able to break stuff and what is the general, are there rules for, are there guidelines, are they unspoken rules? What is, how does that work? You know, it's interesting. The, um, 
So let's say you have a let's say you're covering a team and you have an agent on one side, you have the team on the other in some sort of negotiation or maybe the agent's wondering if his player's going to get traded. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have a source in the team who might, you know, potentially tip you off as to what the team thinks about such and such a player. Right. And then maybe you go to the agent or you're having a conversation with the agent and then somebody says something, oh yeah, you know, I'm hearing that they're, you know, they might, they might look to trade them or something like that. Right. And then the agent, in exchange for that information, might give you a heads up, like if a trade actually does happen or something along those lines or a contract signing right. or something like that. In exchange for that kind of information, the agent may say, all right, well, when something happens, I'll make sure you're the first to, to get it. So it's very much tit for tat. It can be tit for tat. Yes, you is, need to. You there. There is a. Oftentimes, agents, and this is what I'm running into now, trying to contact them. I have nothing to give agents in terms of information. Right. I know nothing. So why would they? So why would they, barter with? But me you might know something in the future. Right. Is it always you as the reporter having to give them something first? But they also they don't know me. They've never met right, me right, too. Right. So, getting to meet them or talk to them on the phone or, or whatever also helps with that process to right. become more comfortable with you. Right. Um, so when I'm when I'm just sending out text messages and emails or phone calls cold to people without ever having met them face to face, I'm fighting a huge uphill battle, especially against one of my main competition on the Timberwolves beat, a guy who's been covering the NBA for over 15 years. And uh, he's your competition in the same newspaper? No, he's a he writes for the Athletic in Minneapolis. Oh. Okay, and do you know him personally? Yes, I do. Okay, he's a very nice guy. Yeah, <coughs> great reporter, very well connected within the NBA. Right, and he's been on, and he and the national guy for the Athletic, uh, Sham Sharania, have been all over the Butler story. Right, and they've been kicking our ass. Right, but again, it's my first week. I'm going to get my ass kicked. There's nothing I can do about it. Right. Um. What kind of um, analytics do you know about in terms of what you guys get in terms of, I guess, page views, right? Because you can't really count paper sold versus like what the athletic is doing. I don't know what their metrics look like. Okay. Um, I have a general idea of what our metrics are. Um, I can't really say what they are. Okay. They don't want. They don't want that information sure. out there. Um, I don't know how many subscribers the athletic has. I will say that I hope that the athletic succeeds in right. this industry because that means more jobs for everybody, which right. is always a good thing. So I hope, like hell, that they succeed. But I know, and I'm not the only one that thinks this. There's a significant number of journalists, and even some that work at the athletic that I know are very concerned that they're getting too big too fast and they're wondering when their bosses are going to sell them and what's you know and then once you're sold what are the new owners going to do with it what is their vision for the future so i will say it's 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 a bit of an uneasy kind of situation for the athletic right now right in terms of in terms of people don't know where they're going do you think it could end up just getting bought by like ESPN or some other national it could syndicate. be it could be absolutely that's that's in play um, I don't know what's going to happen we'll see hmm. so, so I'm, I'm happy to be at a newspaper that is 
especially compared to the rest of the newspaper industry, on very good footing financially. Right. Yeah. Um, obviously, this is going to apply more to your time at the Blackhawks because you haven't gotten into it too much with mm-hmm. the Timberwolves yet. But when you're talking about this information dealing, um, is it always the reporter going to whoever and saying, I have this, what can you give me in exchange? Or like, do they ever come to you? You never say, what can, they, what can you give me in exchange? Okay. It's never done like that. Okay. Um, it, I mean... Like, let's say you find out something from the team, you know, about a player. You want to get the player's reaction somehow, some way, too. That's also being a fair reporter. Right. Before you write anything. Right. Like, if, if, you, if a team tips you off that so-and-so might get traded or is looking to be traded, the fair thing to do generally is to try and at least get some sort of reaction from the player and or the agent. Right. Um, you know, to see what they think, see what they've heard. Maybe you get more information. I don't know. What are the mm-hmm. morals and ethics around information trading? Are there I mean, any? Um, it's it's a very and it's not that's not an official term either. Sure, it's not like we say so and so is an information trader. Right, reporters. Um, it's it's you walk you have to walk a very fine line. You also have to walk a fine line in the sense that. You don't want to withhold um, information um, for the purpose of getting a scoop, I would say. That's not a great way to operate. Okay. Exactly. Like withholding bad news on someone in the in the hopes that they might give you something down the line. You know, right. If you know what I mean? Especially in the political world. Oh, God. You don't want to do well, that in the that, political yeah, world. That's yeah, that's where I was thinking yeah. more in, in, in parallel, but I guess it's completely different from sports. I mean, sports is not life and death, but yeah. I personally would not do that. Now, that's not to say that doesn't happen, um, so, you know, where somebody looks the other way on something in exchange for something else down the line, but right. I personally have never done that okay. in my career. And don't plan on it. Until you're presented with us with something that forces that that conflict, right? Well, then I'll then I'll have to make a decision. But I'm almost always n- not going to hide something under the rug, right? In exchange for a scoop, that's not how I operate. Okay. Um, yeah. Do you have to reveal your sources to your um, company? Um, to your editors? We actually haven't had that or? conversation. Um, okay. Um, and I uh, should have that conversation with them. Because, like, how can Generally, they... Generally, with, the, with my immediate superiors, I mean, they're also bound to the same secrecy of sources that I would be bound to. Right. So I would feel okay telling them, hey, here's where I got this, if you mm-hmm. want to know. Um, because we're all, in that sense, we're all kind of under the same umbrella. Right. Um, but, like, I guess where I'm coming from is, like, how do they... How do they let's let's say you get a, a source and it's a legitimate source that's giving you information, mm-hmm. um, other than waiting to see if that information breaks somewhere else to prove that that source is real? How else do they know if you don't tell them who the person is? Excuse me, who the person is? Right. How do they know that it's legitimate information? Well, it's just your word as a reporter. Okay. And if you're wrong, right? Then it. Then then there's going to be a little more scrutiny the next time around. Mm-hmm. In Chicago. I never had to tell, I never told them who my sources were when I would either confirm reports or 
God forbid, break some news. Right. <laughs> um, it did happen a few times where I did break some news. Um, but, uh, yeah, I never had to tell them. And I never did tell them. Right. Um, they, they trusted me. Would you prefer not to tell? Not to tell? Um, I would prefer not to tell, absolutely. You don't want to divulge your sources. Now, the, the, the secrecy that you talk about with mm-hmm. reporters, mm-hmm. obviously... Attorneys, doctors, you have you know patient client, you have a client attorney, whatever confidentiality, patient doctor confidentiality. Mm-hmm. That, te- that there's no actual law that makes that exist for reporters. It's more of just a it's a mo- it's a moral sense of uh, it's a moral compass that you guys subscribe to. Well, I mean, not really. I mean, if, you don't if, you don't if, take if an oath saying I'm I, I I understand the reason you're saying is that it's yeah, if you don't if you don't do it you're not going to get anything. Mm-hmm. Right. If you don't, if you don't protect sources' identities, you're not going to get sources. But, well, but you could be sued for what slander and libel. Yeah. If you reveal, if you reveal the information, or if you reveal the identity of sources that you promise to keep. Well, sure, secret, sure. Yeah. Or if you, or if you I, I, publish I an off-the-record conversation, for instance, you could well, be that, sued that's for more, that. That's more where I was going. Was that in terms of there's, but there, you don't take an oath saying I promise to do this, this, and this. So why does that simple fact of saying this is off the record, like you don't sign a contract, contract with, with your source, they don't sign anything, you don't sign anything, this is basically, it's a verbal agreement. I don't know the law behind that. Okay, all right. But that is the law, I think. I don't know the history behind it. Okay, that's fair. And But there's a difference also between off the record and then like back uh, background yes. conversations, which is... Background is sources. Okay. Source says this. Source says that. That's background. So it's it's their way to be on the record without being on the record without being. Identified. They're providing you the information, but they're not going on the record with it. Obviously, as a reporter, you would rather have everything on the record, but especially in the sports world, it's just not it's gonna, just not going to happen. What were your feelings on the the report that came out? Was it two weeks ago of the the person within the White House saying like I'm a White House. A worker no. and I'm I'm actively working more or less against Trump. How did you feel that was written in terms of like, do they do a good job protecting the source? Do you feel like that was a foolish thing for that person to come out and do because it basically it puts a target on their well, back? Well, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't care about the person themselves. I mean, sure. I have two different, I have two different opinions of of that. Okay. One is one is from my political opinions and one is from a journalistic standpoint. Okay, well, give me the journalistic. Journalistic standpoint is absolutely they should have published that. Right. Um, you got to publish that. Mm-hmm. But that <laughs> was an op- that was an op-ed piece. Right, an, an, an anonymous op-ed piece. They, now, the, the reason why it was such so controversial is because it's an op-ed piece with nobody's name on it. Right. Um, usually op-ed pieces have people's names attached. But to me, in that sense, the Times could have just written a story saying there are senior officials within the Trump White House that are, you know, actively, actively working, working yes. not working against him, but, you know, doing certain things to make sure some of his crazier impulses are controlled. You right. know, they could have written a straight news story like that, and it would have been providing the same information just in a different manner, in a different framework. but they presented it differently in a way that had a big impact, right? As opposed to just writing five sources in the Trump White House said X Y Z, 
That might not have made as big of an impact as this op-ed piece did. But absolutely, they should have published it. So when you provide that kind of story with that <laughs> level of information and detail, why not always do it that way? Um, well, because generally you don't like to have anonymous op-ed pieces. Right. The op-ed page is where you're supposed to sign your name to something, right. generally speaking. This is one instance where an exception, I felt like, was appropriate. Gotcha. But generally, you want people to sign their names and stuff. Fair enough. Yeah. Do you, um, do you like, so, so talking about op-ed, mm-hmm. and, I, and I guess maybe this is the same category, mm-hmm. um, Derek Jeter started the Players' Tribune. Mm-hmm. Did you like that, what it, what it represents and what they're doing with it? Did you feel like it kind of, it muddies the water of what a... It's fine. I mean, we have social media, so players can present their side of the story in any way that they want anymore. Right. You can post, you can post your thoughts on Facebook, you can post your thoughts on Twitter and Instagram. It doesn't matter, the outlet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, it, it's fine. And some of those things are almost comical at this point. Oh, really? Um, well, I mean, they, they, they have some good editors over at the Players' Tribune. I'll, I'll say that. And they end up, a lot of these pieces end up having a very similar voice to them. So right. I, wonder, I wonder who's really doing the writing and the heavy lifting on the, on the writing and editing of some of those pieces. Huh. Okay. Um, what's your favorite part about being a reporter? Uh, I think putting together a good feature story and then seeing it in print. Yeah. And seeing the reaction it gets. Like, you put a lot of work into a story. You pull all the pieces of it together into one cohesive thing. The bosses like it. They give it a lot of play on the paper. Um, yeah, that's that's probably the best part. How, how much work? So, so you mentioned today, earlier today that you have to, you're have you responsible for two slugs a day? Two stories one, a day? One or two, yeah. Yeah. Um, how much work goes into each story in terms of time that you think about it, you write it, it gets edited before it's actually in print and people can read it? It all depends. Um, I mean, if you're writing a gamer on deadline, sometimes you're, you're writing it in 20 minutes. You're writing, you know, 600 words in 20 minutes. Uh-huh. I've done that before. Um, if you're writing like a daily advanced story for a game, Maybe you think of an idea for, I don't know, half hour to an hour before practice or something like that. You do a little research. Um, you talk to people. You transcribe the interviews. You go write the thing. So right there, you're probably talking maybe four, four-ish hours, give or take. And then it goes through the editing process, which could probably take a couple more hours in the office. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at about maybe six, seven hours total. Per piece. Before it is in the paper, yeah. Um, when you throw something out there on Twitter, mm-hmm. is that also considered a, a slug, or is that is that a separate? No, Twitter is a whole separate deal. So, 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 so or I guess what I should say, refer to as: mm-hmm. Are you required, or are you expected to put out a certain amount of social media? No, content? we're not required. Okay. Um, but they want you on Twitter, right? Yeah, and they want you to react to stuff and talk about stuff and share stuff and retweet stuff. Interact with readers, yeah, right. and you know, of course, share all the links. Everything that you write, yeah. When you're when you're at a game, right? Because you, you're obviously you've done this in the past with other teams. Mm-hmm. When you're at a game and you're watching the game, you know your your job is to then condense that down into that like a six hundred word story after it's done. Mm-hmm. What sort of things are you paying attention to or jotting down as the game goes on? Are you always looking for something, or is it, you know, because there's always to me whenever I read a, a a sports recap, there's always 
certain anecdotes from the game that happened. So, like, how, how what is that process for getting those down, jotting them mm-hmm. down, picking them out? What does that look like? Um, actually, I think one of the best, uh, one of the best, the best pieces of game writing that I've done was not on the Blackhawks beat because when you cover when you cover hockey, you're so high up in the press box. Right, and, and and then for the third periods, you're watching it from the media room because you have to be next to the locker room to be right able to room. get there right away. Right. Um, but when I covered Notre Dame football for the Chicago Tribune, they let you out of the field for the last five minutes of the game. Oh, cool! So I go down. I would go down to the field, and win or lose, I would just watch the reaction of everybody and see what they did, either in celebration or in defeat, mm-hmm. and I would write that that was what I wrote Um, you know how did so-and-so react how did uh, you know what was Brian Kelly doing who was he hugging who you know who was he screaming at (laughs) you know those kind of things I think when you can take the reader there I think that's more beneficial than just a description of the game and what happened like actually putting them in the scene Um, somebody told me along the way there's always value in the scene and it's always something that I, I always stuck with. Like, just describe what's in front of you. What's what's people's reaction? What is, what's their mood? Describe that for the reader, and you're offering something that they can't get by just watching on television. Right. Did you enjoy, yeah. um, I mean, I know it's short-lived, mm-hmm. but did you enjoy your time covering Notre Dame football? Absolutely, yeah, I loved it. Football and basketball, they yeah. went hand in hand. Um, obviously, I enjoyed the basketball a little more, but yeah, I, I liked it a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would you, I mean, obviously, in terms of like a hierarchy, professional sports tend to be higher than college, but given mm-hmm. that Notre Dame's reach, is that is that a job that you can look at as like a beat reporter and say, that's that's one of those upper echelon jobs? Like, and, 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 yeah, and, it can and not be. Just Notre Dame, like maybe Alabama, Texas, USC, like the major Well, it depends programs. on who you're covering it for. Um, okay. If you're, covering it for this, if you're covering Notre Dame for the South Bend Tribune, that's a very good job. And that's one way. But if you're covering it for the Chicago Tribune, that's even better. If you're right. covering it for ESPN, that's that's better. Um, you know, so it depends on the outlet as well, right? And the exposure that you get from the outlet. Would if, you ever want to go to a national outlet like ESPN, or I'd have to consider the situation because the ESPN laid a lot of people off for right. the last few years. So I would have to have a pretty ironclad contract or something like that right. before I would ever go to them. What about, and let's say you have a competitor at The Athletic that starts up, and you know, obviously the... Well, we already have it in Minnesota. You do? Uh-huh. There's a, there's a Minnesota Athletic? There's a Minnesota Athletic. Well, no, sorry. I, I, I meant competitor <laughs> to The Athletic. Like That's an, probably not going to happen, but okay. okay. I'll, I'll, I'll well, I just meant, I'll I just meant, ter- I just meant in terms of like, obviously... <laughs> Um, the print format, in some ways, is dying in terms of readership, right? So right. the athletics' purpose was saying, let's take the thing that people enjoy about reading and then specify it to, to sports, right? And there's, right. A, there's a user base that will pay for that content. Yeah. That's one of those things where you could say when they talk about, like, you know, newspapers are dying. If you could find another way to reinvent, so let's say another company comes along, would you also consider that because of what they represent, or for you, I would, I would consider anybody who is interested in in me. I okay. would I would take a phone call and have a conversation and see what they're all about. I mean, I might not, you might not go right. anywhere, right. but I've 
if anybody's interested in hiring me to write for them, I'm going to listen. Outside of the athletic, what are what are some ideas that you would have in terms of how you can change the industry or save the industry or however you want to phrase it to make I don't reporting? Know. I don't know. <laughs> I like what the athletic is doing. I, I like I like that they are emphasizing depth right. and good reporting and good writing over over chasing clicks okay um so i do i do like what they what they've done in terms of that mantra right i just hope it works right when will you know if it's worked we're not gonna i mean it's gonna be a multi-year experiment so you know if they crash and burn one day then we'll know that it didn't work right you know if they get sold, you know, it also depends on the whims of the of the owners. Do you know how many people um, currently work for them in terms of like oh, sports writers? Know, hundreds at this point. And the, and they're backed. Is it private private, private. equity? They're mm-hmm. they're fucked. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're only like ten bucks a month, right? So how how many people do they have to have for that to be sustainable? I don't know. Yeah. I, I really don't. <laughs> and that's what we're all wondering in the in the industry. It's like how long can this go right at these at these current subscription rates and especially because they've hired some really big people that commanded a lot of money right to come work for them right so where is this money coming from right you know like and how is it going to sustain itself i mean yeah i can can you again i'm asking questions that probably aren't Makes sense. Can you subscribe to only like your city, or is it you're just subscribing to all the athletic? I'm pretty sure you. Su- I have a subscription that allows you into all of it. I don't, and I don't know if that's. I don't know if there's. I don't think it's just one thing. I think they. I think they give it. They give you the whole shebang. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Um, they want you to sample everything. Right. Mm-hmm. If you couldn't write for sports. And obviously, I assume music or TV or movies would be your next choice. Yeah, um, I would also maybe just be a feature writer. Okay. And just write feature stories. You could do that. Be right. like a magazine kind of writer. But newspapers also have feature departments as well. So I could see myself being a feature writer hmm. and just kind of telling interesting stories wherever they pop up. Is there a model? Obviously, the majority of newspaper revenue comes from ads. Right, right, um, and the ads that you, what you charge for the ads is based on the viewership and the the reading that you get. Right, is there a model where you could just have a straight out newspaper that's not supported by ads? With that's that, what the athletics trying to, but do. they're doing that for sports. I'm talking about right. as a whole. Is that even possible? No, because advertising has always been the driver behind newspapers. Right, there's never been an ad-free newspaper. I mean, for the reason why newspapers were so successful for so long, especially in the '90s was the classified pages. Right. Those things were huge before the internet took them, took it over. I see. Um, so that was a, that was a, a huge revenue. a lot of money off of classified ads, yeah. Right. And now they, and now you just go online for all that shit. So that's really big, a big chunk out of their business. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It did. Especially in the, as Craigslist and places like that became big. Right. The classifieds went by yeah. the wayside pretty much. Um, I mean that that was more or less the, the line of questioning I had. I've got about thirty questions for okay. you from, from the group. Um, I didn't pre-sort these, so we're not going to have the traditional like questions from the group and rapid round. We're just going to do it all together. All right. Don't feel like you have to answer as fast as you can. Obviously, be cognizant that we're recording. Okay. 
Um, but we'll go through them, okay? All right, let's 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 do them. All right, uh, number one. Uh-huh. Describe "Send Me on My Way" by Rusted Root in two distinct words. Send me on my way. Yeah. What, what is that? By Rusted Root. I don't know. I think is, is, is it that one song? Send me on my way. I, I'm on sure. my way. In two words. In distinct two words. Uh, a catchy hook. Okay. If you could master an instrument that is not the piano, what would it be? Guitar. If uh, you're forced to switch iPods with someone, and that's the only music you can listen to for a month, which group member's iPod are you choosing? <laughs> Who still has an iPod? That's a good question. Um, let's see. I flip through my head here. Um, Joe Mancuso would have Michelle Branch on it, so that would be a plus for him. <laughs> uh, but he wouldn't have much else. Um, uh, God, good question. I guess I'd probably go with J-Bone. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you can only have one dipping sauce slash, uh, slash condiment for the rest of your life. Choose. Oh, ranch. I mean, come on. Easy. <laughs> Would you rather listen to Goop discuss Harry Potter for six hours in a Gryffindor-esque, uh, tower-esque room sitting in the best chairs by the fire or <laughs> listen to Goop discuss Lord of the Rings for six hours in the Green Dragon Pub. Lord of the Rings, because at least I read The Hobbit once upon a time, so I'd have at least a somewhat idea of what the hell was happening. How many hours would you be awake for? Uh, one. Do you want to guess who wrote that question? Uh, Gates, yes. (laughs) (laughs) The group has hypothetically put together a softball team, but you and your sweet sweet stroke have been left off. Respond. I uh, join a rival team and take them down. Okay. Mm-hmm. Follow up: Was this the most disappointed you ever you've ever been in this group? If not, when? Um, I mean, I wasn't that disappointed. It would have been fun to play softball. I felt like I, uh, you know, my swing was good enough to be on the team. I, flag football, I, I get why I wasn't on that team, but softball, I mean, come on. Okay. I mean, anybody who saw me play offhand baseball knows I can swing a bat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, which city is in the U.S. is the worst to visit? Buffalo. Uh, why? It's just boring as hell. Okay. And Jordan Matthews actually confirmed that uh, the other day. I don't know if you saw no. his interview after signing, re-signing with the Eagles. He basically said that he became a father during his one year in Buffalo because he basically said... His wife and he had nothing to do with in Buffalo but each other. <laughs> so they just had a lot of sex. Uh, best city to visit? In the U.S.? Yes. Um, uh, that's, I mean, it's, it's Chicago, New York, San Francisco would be the three that stick out for me. Um, I'd probably go with San Francisco. Okay. Yeah. Uh, is Taylor Swift our generation's Carol King? Um, close, but no. Okay, if not, then who? Um, I guess if I had to, if I had to pick a woman, I mean, I guess in some ways Sia would be probably most comparable to Carole King's career because she's written hits for other artists as opposed to her. Taylor Swift has done a little bit of that. Yeah. But... I don't know. It's 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 close between Sia and Taylor Swift. Okay. Um, who is the secret gay NFL player? Oh, I don't. Uh, I, I 
don't know who that is. I, w- I wish I knew who it was. I don't know who it is. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, craft the perfect journalism role for you. Um, feature writer and columnist. Yeah. For so we talked about, talked about it a little bit. Right? Yeah, we did kind of cover that, yeah. Uh, worst song of your lifetime to rise to number one. <laughs> Great question. Oh, man. Um, so many options on this one. Um, man, what was... What, what ticked me off that I saw go to number one? Um, I mean... One Dance by Drake. I'll never understand why that song went to number one or was as popular as it was. Because it was number one for a long time. Mm-hmm. No idea why. Um, worst song. <coughs> Grills by Nelly is pretty bad, but I wouldn't say it's the worst I've ever heard. Uh, Laffy Taffy, also from that same time frame. <laughs> also very bad. Right. Um, so I'd probably I'd probably go with uh, with some of those. Okay. But at least Laffy Taffy was catchy. Yeah, Laffy Taffy was a little catchy. One Dance by Drake. I'm just like because all those other ones this? you said them. I I don't remember how they go. Laffy Taffy. I mean, in my head, yeah. I was like, oh, Laffy Taffy. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, can you feel the love tonight? Always. Best looking indie b-ball player since 2005. Oh God. <laughs> I don't know if I should answer this one. Um, Come on. Since 05. Um, best looking indie basketball player. Um, I don't know. I guess I'd probably say... Uh, eh, no, no, I wouldn't say him. Maybe I'd go with, uh, maybe go with McElarney. Okay. Uh, Earth, wind, fire, or water? Uh, fire. The group is forced to watch 12 straight hours of supermarket sweep Uh and then compete so everyone has a pretty similar idea of strategy. Power rank the best sweepers. Jesus Um, Christ. uh, (laughs) All right. Um, I'd go, uh, I'd go Mike because Mike has been, I still think Mike would figure out a way. Right. Um, I'd go with. Jeez, uh, it's that's. I'm gonna go with Coop because he's also seeming to be jumping on this bandwagon. Okay. Um, I'd go with maybe Joe and Tim, not that far behind. Um, Joe Mancuso. I mean, it's that's that's tough. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, don't that's do it with everybody. Tough. You did I would say top Coop, four. Or I would five. say Coop and Mike. Are okay, at, top two at the top. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Uh, what Texas Hold'em hand do you most associate with Tim? <coughs> um, um, I guess this cap, this came after the bachelor party when I did horribly in Texas Hold'em. Um, Tim, Tim probably ends up. I would say maybe like a king nine and Tim tries to play it thinking that it's a good hand but then it ultimately he ends up folding okay yeah what makes the perfect song um I don't know there's certain songs that I think uh just they're timeless like they they almost seem like the melody and the words like always existed in the universe and 
some writers just kind of pluck them out of the air. Right. It's hard to define exactly why that is or why those songs are like they are. Um, but there's a couple songs that I think stand out in my mind among the rest as just like kind of being these, these like just perfect, perfect songs that almost sound like heavenly. Um, okay. Uh, to me, those songs are uh, are uh, "Stand by Me." Okay. Uh, "Bridge Over Troubled Water" by Simon and Garfunkel. Okay. Uh, Carol King's "You've Got a Friend." Okay. And uh, "Let It Be" by the Beatles. Hmm. Those are those are those four songs for me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, describe <laughs> describe the power struggle between. G and Oop in your mind, and who you think wears the pants in the relationship? Uh, obviously, Coop isn't wearing pants because he's boning Gates's mom the entire time. <laughs> so, so Gates is wearing the pants, but that's not necessarily a sign of power in the relationship. Uh, um, I don't know if this person just submitted the same question twice, or if somebody else submitted the exact same question. Uh-huh. I'm gonna assume it's the same. I don't remember who Is asked the last time. The same or the words are the same, but they added it. Last time they asked best looking indie baseball players 2005. This time they wrote it again, but also added best looking indie football player since 2005. <sighs> um. <laughs> again, that's a it's a wide range of of people to pick. Um. Uh. Man, I'll try to give I'll try to give an answer. Um, I don't know. I always thought Matthias Farley was really good looking. Okay. Yeah. Uh, paint a picture for me. Who is Hino in a dozen, nay, a baker's dozen years? Where is he? What's he up to? How closely does this align with where you would put Hino in a perfect world? Um. Hopefully, you know, either. I'm the columnist at the Star Tribune or I'm writing for, you know, a bigger publication or something like that. Um, I'm still writing. I'm still a sports writer or, God forbid, maybe my music finally hits it big and, you know, I can live off my royalties. Who knows? (laughs) Uh, What makes the perfect TV show? Uh, great writing and great acting above all else you don't have anything if you don't, you don't have anything if you don't have great writing a show falls so flat to me if, if the writing sucks what is your top three TV shows right now or not right, uh, now, right now let's say, let's say ever time. let's say ever ever uh, The Wire number one Friday Night Lights number two Breaking Bad number three okay mm-hmm. tried watching Bloodline I just can't see Kyle Chandler as anyway but Coach <laughs> it's very hard isn't it yeah <laughs> uh, thoughts on K-pop don't listen to it, so don't really know too much about it. Okay. All Metallica all day or Teletubbies for 10 hours? All Metallica all day. What is your greatest athletic achievement of all time? Um, good question. I mean, when I was when I was 14, I, I don't know, I, I wouldn't say this was so much of an achievement, but... I think it was just kind of like indicative of where I was at the time when I, in terms of baseball, I played, I was in eighth grade and I was playing on a, like a junior high baseball team of one of the local high schools, Mm -hmm. not the high school I ended up going to, but just a a local high school. 
I hit third in the lineup, and the kid who hit first um, ended up going to Bucknell on a scholarship hmm. to play baseball. The kid who hit second went to Pitt on a scholarship. I hit third, and the kid who hit fourth ended up getting drafted by the Orioles. Wow. So, and then shortly thereafter, I injured my back. Oh. And that set me right. way back in my athletic development. Hmm. But I was right there with those guys at 14 years old. Man. So. That's crazy, because that could have put you on a completely different path. Uh-huh. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, if you were airdropped into the jungle, how long would you last? <laughs> a day. It would not go well. <laughs> I readily admit that. What song reminds you most of Mike? Um, uh, what's that one song? Um, the Red Jumpsuit Apparatus. Uh, um, I know what song you're talking about. Oh, um, Is it like the famous when, one? When you push her around, do you feel better now? As she falls to the ground. I remember like them playing that song. Right. And so I always associate like that song with like Mike and Riley. Hmm. Yeah. Um, that's the same question. Uh, is, there <laughs> is there anyone in the world you would let tickle you? Odell Beckham. Okay. Yeah. That's it. That's the list. Uh, who is the best at the office trivia among the group, and why isn't it Gates? <laughs> Who's best at office trivia? Yeah, in the group, and why? I don't know. We haven't had Gates? office trivia. No, we should. We we should do office trivia. We should do an office trivia. I feel like I feel like I would not do well in office. I, I feel trivia. like I near. I forget. Might. You yeah. I think you guys would do really well. Yeah. I don't. I especially. I think I would do well if it was like season two and three. Right. But like. Getting into like season four, five, six, and seven, and God, I never watched the, I barely watched the show when Steve Carell left. Yeah, it was alright. So I feel like you guys would know a lot more. Um, than I our would. friends Phil and Kelsey just started watching mm-hmm. The Office, and it got mm-hmm. us really excited because it's like they're they never watched it before. Yeah. So they're experiencing it for the first time, and uh, they were they she was they have quoting, to be loving she, it. She was quoting um, Diversity Day. She's like Cookie Cookie. I'm like, oh, oh my, my god. god. I'm like, oh if I. If I had to guess and and with about a stereotype that I don't agree with, you might be a considered a bad driver. He's like, oh man, am I yeah. a woman? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, just imagine like the joy of being able to go through one of those shows for the first time. I know. Like I'm you jealous. know, it's like I'm jealous of people who get to do that. I'm especially jealous of people who have not watched The Wire and yeah. then sit down and watch it for the first time because that is. I I, I, love I can I only again. got through like the first half of the season. I've never actually seen it. I need oh, to. I know I need yeah. to. It's just. There's so much other the best, stuff on TV. It's the best show of all time. Yeah. It's the best show of all time. We'll get, we'll get there. We'll get it. There's mm-hmm. so many, you know, it's like, I, I constantly go back and rewatch stuff. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. we watch The Office and Scrubs mm-hmm. and Parks and Rec and stuff like that. But, like, I even, I've gone back and watched, like, Battlestar Galactica mm-hmm. a couple of times because I really like, I thought that was really well done. Um, I watched, we watched The Firefly. I mean, it was only 13 episodes. We watched that at least once a year. Yeah. So... I mean, I do that too. A lot of good TV. I do that too. I repeat episodes of of, of shows. I like yeah. watching. I like watching The Office and Parks and Rec. I've actually been watching those a little more than I have recently. Like, yeah. I've, there was one night where I maybe went through four or five episodes of The Office, and then like another night where I went through three or four of Parks and Rec. Yep. Like just for the hell of it. Um, we just rewatched The Good Place season two. 
So super. That actually, super I, I think I might want to do that. I definitely when, do when it. When does the new season start? Uh, September twenty seventh. Oh, so Great, yes. awesome. Okay, and cool. uh, if I, I think I mentioned in the poor boy, the Good Place podcast, mm-hmm. really worth listening to. And I would say mm-hmm. either watch the episode, then listen to the because they do one episode mm-hmm. for each one podcast episode for each episode that's that's aired. So it's like, I think okay. there's twenty something. Um, so I would say either listen to the epi- listen to the podcast, then watch that episode, or vice versa. There's a lot of stuff you can you catch, but what's really crazy is now knowing the twist of season one. Mm-hmm. If you go back and watch right from the get go, they're tor- being tortured to each other. Yeah. So it's like, how did you like they they laid all this stuff that's like real obvious, you and you just never picked up on it yeah. until. So that's I think it's great. So I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what they where they go with the show. Yeah. Um, they're they're heavily into moral philosophy. Obviously. Um, on the, well, yeah, but like on the podcast, they really dive into it, and like Mike Sure has even come on and talked about like why it's so important for him, and mm-hmm. they they consult with a bunch of like moral philosophy professors, like one of them's from Clemson and one of them is UCLA, so it's a, it's a real big part of like 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 the whole cast learns about it, and you know they want to make sure they get it right, and yeah. so it's it's really fascinating that, that for them to have taken that concept and applied it to like a, a prime time show because like. Mm-hmm. They're even lucky they got to do it because basically what happened was was uh, if, uh, NBC went to Mike Sure and said like you know obviously because he did The Office he did Parks and Rec he did um, right. Brooklyn Nine Nine and so they came and said like hey we have like a thirteen episode slot we want to give it to you uh, here's a time um, during these <coughs> and just do whatever you want yeah. they gave him like carte blanche yeah. and it's like if they if they if he, that had been anybody else with that idea it never would have made it to TV fascinating so yeah it's it's really i mean even the first episode with just him is just worth to listen to okay um because yeah it was just you know it's just it, it you know especially because I, I didn't know he's most like just picturing him and uh and then listening to like he's just it, creatively he's just mm-hmm. it's incredibly intelligent and absolutely um with what he wants to accomplish but anyway so uh i mean we're, we're just under two hours so we accomplished what we wanted we didn't want to oh go, good okay we, we didn't we, yeah we i don't i think we ended short of two yeah hours. we, we, yeah, we yeah. didn't want we didn't want to go super long we wanted we to did. keep it a, yep. a medium size give ourselves yes. an extra template overcooked yes um which i'm fine with playing more if you want to keep playing. yeah let's do it yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. all right so uh, hey uh, thanks everybody for listening mm-hmm. uh thank you uh mm-hmm. uh Hino, or should i say chief Mm-hmm. Uh, for being our guest, I think you're number six. So yeah. we're halfway through the group. Mm-hmm. So people need to start volunteering either to come to my house or I have to fly to them or something. Something's got to work. I got to figure that out because yeah. I got Galchen September. I got you in October. Mm-hmm. I got to figure out November. Yep. And December. I don't. I don't want the show to take a break. Um, the only other option I have is you know I originally set out with the intention of interviewing other people outside the group as well yeah so maybe i have to veer off and do a family member of mine mm. i don't know if people in the group would want to listen to that though i i think we'd listen to pretty much anything okay. i don't think it matters yeah mm-hmm. um but i want to i definitely want to keep doing this because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm enjoying it so um thanks everybody and we'll see you next time on the next all chat right. which has all right and welcome back um you know most of you uh i would have hoped i've just listened to the whole episode and weren't expecting this but we're going to go ahead and do a uh, follow-up sort of epilogue to the the chief chat that just happened uh, about a month ago. Chief, are you with me? I am with you, Chaz. All right, cool. Um, We're not doing yeah. this in person, by the way. We're this doing is, this, this over the phone. Yeah, this is over the phone. Um, you know, this actually came about idea from from Hino. Um, as he was listening to the Gelch chat, which just got released, he brought up a couple of things and texted me about things that we could talk about. Um, you know, potentially in the future. 
but then you had the good idea of saying like, why don't we just do since since your episode hasn't been released yet, and this is being recorded obviously before that gets released, why not just record basically in a an addendum or an epilogue, and then I'm gonna put this at the end of your chat, so that way you know people are gonna go through it and think, oh, well, that was a good chat, and then hey, a little bonus chat at the end for them. A little bonus chat, and we are targeting this for a release date that is going to have some significance to the to what I'm going to talk about um, yeah. here over the next couple of minutes. Yeah, and you know, um, I, I appreciate you bringing it up mainly because, um, you know, I, I think I even said this during our chat that I wasn't intentionally focusing on your childhood and your upbringing as I had done with other people because I wanted to talk more about um, your sexuality and more about your, your journalism career. Um, and, you know, that probably wasn't totally fair to you. Obviously, I'm sure there was some stuff there that you wanted to share. And after listening to Gelch chat, you kind of brought oh, it, it was up. Fine. And, it wasn't like well, I was mad or anything. No, no, but... no. I know. But I mean, I, you know, I, I, the, the point of the chat is to learn more about, you know, our group. And, um, you know, I feel like now that I, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where I didn't know about this about you. So I would never even thought to have asked it or to bring it up. So that's, you know, I'm glad that you, you were forthcoming with it because now we can talk about it. I think I think some members in the group might be vaguely aware of, of what happened okay. uh, during my childhood. Um, but I, I but I would say I would venture maybe half to three quarters or not. So okay. I think maybe this will be a little enlightening for for people. Okay. Well, so let, let's let's bring it back now. Um, you know, obviously, you know, I, I know very sparse details. I know basically what I'll what I'll consider like the, the headline. I don't know any details. So, um, well. I'll we'll- just- We'll build, probably, we'll build up to it. We'll build, we'll build up it, to yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so uh, obviously, you know, you have a, a decent sized family coming from the PA area. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about just this, you know, your makeup of your family? I know most people know the size of your family and you know, your siblings, but can you kind of talk about um, the makeup of your family, the differences in ages, sexes, things like that? Sure. Um, so I'm one of four kids. Um, I am the third of those four. Um, my mother uh, was married twice. Um, she was married very young um, to a guy uh, named Ed Zaleppa. And uh, they had two daughters, my two sisters, uh, Jennifer and Carolyn, uh, who are both in their early 40s right now. Um, okay. That marriage didn't work out. They got divorced. Um, and a few years after that, she met my dad after one of my dad's uh, high school basketball games that he was coaching. And uh, they dated for a little while and, um, you know, they, they actually stopped dating for a minute. And then my mom actually called him and uh, wanted to resume the relationship. And then a few years later, they got married. And okay. two years after that, in 1986, they had me. And then uh, 10 years later, nine years later, they had my brother. So between my brother, Matt, and my oldest sister, Jennifer, there's a 21-year age gap. Um, so we are very spread apart, the, the Hind family clan. Now, when, when uh, your parents eventually got married and had you, and obviously they're on your brother, were your sisters in the house at, at that time? So they were, cause they, yes. they would have only been like 9, 10, 12 years ahead of you. Correct. Uh, my sisters are 8 and 10 years ahead of me. Do you, um, do you right, I'm any... sorry, they're, they're, they're nine and 11 years ahead of me. I'm sorry. Okay. It's yeah. okay. Do you have any recollection of like growing up with them as like your older sisters? Oh because yeah. You, yeah. By, absolutely. by the time you were like, what, like six, seven, eight, they were basically 
high school and getting ready to go off to college. Exactly. Yeah. They were, they were both in high school. Yeah. Six, seven years old. They were both in high school. Um, You know, they were, they were two years apart from each other. So they were relatively close. They were in high school at the same time. Um, And yeah, they were my, they were my big sisters. It wasn't that unusual. When, When you grow up under those circumstances, it doesn't seem unusual to have sisters that are that much older than you. Um, mm-hmm. It's just what you know. Um, uh, credit to my dad. And, and one thing that I will always respect and admire about my dad, there's a lot of things that I respect and admire, but, you know, for someone to, uh, you know, marry someone and, and enter a long-term relationship with someone who already had two kids, like he did with my mom, I, I give him a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of props for that. There's not a lot of men out there who are in their late twenties and early thirties that, you know, might have, that might have done that, uh, at that time. So I always give my yeah. dad, you know, in, in hindsight, a lot of credit for, for, for doing that, you know, that's, that's not something that every man would have done. Yeah. Uh, nice shout out with, with the word hindsight, by the way, yeah, um, right. <laughs> <laughs> your, your, so your older sister is their biological father. You, uh, did you, have you ever met him? Do you have any relationship oh, yeah. with him at yeah. all? Um, they have, they have a relationship with him. Okay. Um, one of them has a better relationship than the other does, but he was at both of their weddings. Um, okay. Uh, my dad walked both my sisters down the aisle. Um, okay. Because he was essentially their father. Right. Um, he, he helped raise them basically, but their biological father was at, uh, was at both their weddings. They do have a relationship. He's still alive. Okay. Um, and still kind of in their lives in a way. Um, so yeah, so I have met him before. Yes. Okay. Uh, what was the reasoning that um, that uh, your mother and he broke up? Um, without delving into too many details, he uh, uh, played around a little bit. Gotcha. Uh, okay. And that was that was that. Yeah. Gotcha. Now he's had, he's had a few marriages in his life. Uh, ah. and yeah. So he's had a couple different kids by a couple different wives. Right. So a bit, mm-hmm. bit of a serial womanizer. Okay. A little bit. Um, do your do your sisters uh, have your last name, or do they have his last name? Uh, funny story there. <laughs> one on they, one, they had. Well, hang on, hang on. They had his last name, so they grew up Zalepa, right, throughout um, my entire childhood. And, and uh, but my sister Jennifer, uh, there was a, a family a couple doors down from us, <clears throat> and. Uh, their last name was Hines with an S. Right. And they had a son, Scott, who was about the same age as my sister. And uh-huh. they grew up together. They didn't go to the same high school together. But they always, going. Right, they always lived down the street from each other. And, you know, I, I don't know all the details about the winding path that their but lives took. But they but got together. They got together in their late 20s. Right. Um, and ended up getting married. And so now my sister, who originally did not have the last name of Hine, now, now has Hines with an S. At the That's end funny. Yes. Okay. All right. That confuses people all the time. Right, so, right, right. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Um, did you, did you feel like, uh, were, were you ever meant to feel like, okay, these are just my stepsisters? Did you ever feel like nope. they were just truly, okay. It nope, was all, they, were, they were my sisters. All one unit. Okay. <laughs> they were always then, my sisters. Now, uh, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb and just assume that obviously, given that you're the first child between your mother and your father, you were 
most definitely planned with your brother being 10 years behind you was he planned or was my that brother a... my brother was planned yes my okay um, so it... my, my my parents uh later as they got into their early 40s they wanted to have another kid i kind of pushed them to have a little brother or little sister right um um at like nine eight nine year old me was really pushing hard for it and my mom actually did get pregnant um when I was like maybe six or seven. Right. Um, and she had a miscarriage. Oh, okay. um, yeah. And so, you know, that didn't work out, but they tried again. And my mom's in her, you know, my mom was 40 when she had my, my brother. So it was, you know, not the, no, it's not the most guaranteed of pregnancies. Um, right. But she got pregnant again and ended up having my brother uh, when I was in third grade. And a funny, funny thing about my sister, Jennifer, uh, my other sister's name is Carolyn, by the way. Um, uh, but Jennifer is a, is a teacher. And when I was in grade school, Jennifer had just graduated college and began her teaching career. And she ended up teaching me uh, what was called reading, a.k.a. literature. She was your uh, teacher in, at school? In, in seventh and eighth grade, yes. Huh. yes. Was that weird? No, uh, it was it was fine. Like I enjoyed it, and I think she enjoyed having me as a student. Uh, but like she had know. to treat you like a student. Yeah, but I was I was never a troublemaker or anything right. like that. Like I was always a very good student. Teachers never had an issue with me. I was way too good of a of a student, and you know, probably one of the things that led to me being picked on a lot when I was younger. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> when you were so obviously, you know, you grew up you, essentially for a good part of your life you grew up without a brother you know for the first the first you know first 10 eight, years eight, eight, eight nine eight years. years yeah um so who did you hang out with who were your friends what did you guys do what was your you know what was your social group like yeah i did obviously have... you, you can't play with your older sisters they're not really in the same right they're, right. they're, they're my life, sisters so. my and my sisters growing up my sisters we always got along like we never had any issues um and I love all my siblings, um, you know, never really any issues with anybody growing up. Um, but like you said, you know, it's not like you're, you're doing things with your sisters, especially when they're in high school and you're, you know, and you're six, seven years old. Um, so I didn't have a lot of friends when I was in grade school. I, I was picked on a lot. Um, you know, I was, I wasn't physically bullied. Um, you know, that didn't happen, but it was, it was kind of tough. I went to, a, a, a small Catholic school um, and it was kindergarten through eighth grade was the setup of the school. And you just had one class for each grade. Mm-hmm. So you, you basically were in the same group of 25 to 30 kids all through your time uh, in that school. There were, you know, there was no splitting up of classes. There were no different units so it was kind of like a fishbowl in that sense for, for those eight, nine years that you were together. Right. right. Um, and so if you, were, if you were low on the social ladder, um, it could be a tough time for you. So it was, it was tough for me um, growing up. Looking back on it, I see why. Like I was basically asking for it. <laughs> How so? I was just a nerdy kid. I was just a nerdy kid growing up. Well, yeah, but um, everyone has like things about them that that are you know that that define them in one way. So you nerdy in the sense of like you liked video games, you liked me- or are you talking like nerdy video games, like, video ac- games. or academia? 
Video nerdy. games wasn't usually yeah, academia nerdy. Okay. I I you know, was always afraid of like taking off teachers or getting in trouble. I never like, you know, I, I was good at sports, um, but that didn't really help my social standing. It just was I was good at sports. Um, um I don't know, it was just it was it was weird. I I had I developed that unhealthy obsession with Mariah Carey at a very early age. That did not help with the kids picking on me. Um, unhealthy when I was younger. Not well not unhealthy, of... but like it, it just was like a weird obsession for somebody at nine years old to like especially a boy to have this like obsession and like with with Mariah Carey. It was just weird. Well, you, it was you, it like... was it was atypical of like of somebody that age. And so it was people, a it, people looked at it as very weird. It was a musical uh, uh, fixation, not not in a sexual nature. Obviously not in a sexual nature. Well, I know, but I, just, <laughs> I know, but we talked about how in the, you know early on, you know, there was a little bit of back No, and it was forth musical. It was it okay. was all it was all musical. Like okay. it was uh it was all a musical fixation. Um when, when did I, you I, I, when did you discover Kyle King? That didn't come until high school. Okay, all right. That wasn't until um, I was fifteen or sixteen. But gotcha. but this point in time, yeah, I didn't have a lot of friends. I only had really one friend, right. um, all throughout my childhood, and this happened. Um, I, I guess I'll go back to second grade or third. I think it was third grade when it happened. So there was this kid when we were in first and second grade in our school who was in the class a year ahead of us. His name was, uh, his name was Michael, Michael Melvin is his name. And Michael had a brain tumor when we were in first grade, I believe. And for about a year and a half, he battled that brain tumor. Right. And it went away. And, but he missed like a year and a half of school. So when he came back to school, eventually, he wasn't in his class um, that he was originally in. Right. So he, he joined our class, which was the year, the year, after, or the year younger than, than he was. So he was a year older than us, but because of his, his health situation, he came back into our class. So Michael he joined our class in third grade and he had a walker. Um, He couldn't, you know, he couldn't really walk on his own. Um, That was one of the things that he always was trying to work at and going to therapy for was to regain his strength. Right. That he could walk again. Um, But he, he obviously the, the, the chemo and radiation treatments took a toll on his body. Um, yeah. And even though the cancer went away, there were still some lasting effects. Do you remember what um, type of cancer it was? It was it was just a brain tumor. That's all I knew. Okay, all right. Um, um, and and, and so, wait, I mean, you're just not to cut you off, but you're mm-hmm. you're young when this mm-hmm. is happening. So how was it explained to you? Because I feel like generally, yeah, yeah, when you're you know, young, those types of things you're insulated from that to a degree. You just know like, oh, he's sick. So like, how much right? How much was just, actually explained just, to you? There wasn't a lot that was explained to us when right. you're that young, uh, first and second grade. I, I think you're aware of that point in time. You kind of know what cancer is, right? And you know how how deadly that could be. Um, and at that same time, third grade, my grand, my my dad's mother, my grandmother on that side, she died of cancer. So mm-hmm. I had an awareness of what cancer was and how 
it could kill you um, at that point in time. So I think we all kind of knew that what Michael had was serious and life threatening, but we didn't know the exact details. We didn't know like what kind of cancer it was, you know, obviously like what's, you know, stages and treatments and, and all that. Basically all we knew was that he had cancer and his treatments were very aggressive and, you know, made him sick and, you know, but ultimately it's what he had to do to get better. So obviously he, he he had very thin hair. He had hair. It was very thin, um, but he couldn't walk. And the the thing was he couldn't write very quickly. So Michael required somebody to help him do his schoolwork. Ah, And what they did in third grade was they used to have like, it was like a rotating cast of my classmates. Like one day or one week, it would be somebody's responsibility to help Michael with his assignments. Um, Another week, it would be somebody else. But after a while, because I was kind of a smart kid and could handle my own work. You um, you got... I was, more than, more than I more was cho- than right most. exactly as this process filtered out repetitive I yeah. became the person that that helped him the most how did you um, did you were you um were you resentful at this that you were being chosen for the sexual responsibility did you understand no no not at all I I, under, I understood it was just it was just kind of what I did it was like this kid needs help okay. and I can I can help him and that's what I did okay. um so so through that and through always hanging out together, um, we, we, we would then eat lunch together um, every day uh, through third and fourth grade. Um, and we always, I don't know why we did this, um, but we always ate lunch separately from like the other boys in the class. We had like our own little table and we would have a couple people eat lunch with us, right. but we never, we never ate with the other boys in the class. Um, and he couldn't go outside for recess because of his walker. Mm-hmm. So um, we ended up, he always would have to stay inside for recess. So when the other kids would go outside for recess, oftentimes Michael and I would go back right, to the classroom and we would, we would just play like board games or, or checkers or, or something like that uh, right. during our recess. So through this, we became friends. Um, right. Of course. And, you know, so we started hanging out um, outside of the classroom. And one thing, one thing about Michael that was pretty awesome uh, growing up was because he uh, was a Make-A-Wish kid, um, he had every video game system that was around at that right. point in time. I mean, every, you name it. Do you remember Sega Saturn? Mike had a Sega Saturn. I don't know if I mean, people I remember, remember what the hell I never that was. played it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that was a step up from Genesis, I believe, right? Yes, that was like the next before, thing before, after Sega Genesis, but before, before Dreamcast. Dreamcast. Yep, yes. Yep, yep. Okay. That was their intermediate uh their intermediate system. So yep. he had everything. He had the he had N64 right when it came out. Mm-hmm. He had PlayStation, he had, you know, Super Nintendo, he had the right. Dreamcast, everything. He had everything. So I only had a PlayStation. My parents uh, would not uh, bless me with all the video game systems that were out. I I had a PlayStation, and that was it. Um, So I would always go over Mike's house because I loved playing N64. 
So we would always play like GoldenEye and uh, like, you know, Madden football on N64 and things like that. So this so is we where your just... competitive video game streak comes from. Yes. Yeah. Mike and I played a lot of video games together uh, growing up. And yes, we were very competitive. And there were times where he would get really mad at me. <laughs> so because you didn't let him win. I didn't let him win. Uh, he but he had cancer, man. It was intense. It was intense. He had a cancer at the time, Chad. He was cured of cancer. He had <laughs> suffered from cancer. He got cured. <laughs> no, it was uh, – <laughs> it, it didn't mean a thing. Um, we, yeah, were, we, were, we were pretty intense. Um, so there were times where he would get mad at me um, uh, for, playing, uh, for playing stuff. But we were always, we were always friendly, um, and we always, uh, we always had a good time uh, – Ultimately, his parents, I think, you know, like his parents were divorced. And I looking back on kind of that situation, I don't think that their marriage and divorce was the best situation for him. Um, And I think I think his illness had something to do with his parents splitting up. I don't know the full story. Right. Um, But another big uh, another big person in his life was his grandfather. Um. His name was also Michael. His name was actually Michael Jordan, um, fun yeah. fact. Um, but his grandfather was very big in his life. Um, so I knew, his, I knew his mom, I knew his dad, but I also knew his grandfather really well. His grandfather was around all the time. Uh, his grandfather would come pick him up from school. Um, you know, just a, a really nice guy. Um, so, you know, we were friends, and, and basically I was – come fourth and fifth grade, I was basically the only kid that was like taking care of him. Like right. I was, did I the would... other kid just not want to be friends with him. Did they find it weird? Like, what no, was the no, it, he... it was it, it, with Michael. It wasn't like any of the other kids like weren't friends of his. Um, they, they didn't, they never picked on Michael. They never but like, they just, they, they just never weren't going anything. the extra. They just weren't right. Right. Nobody would like go out of their it way. It was just, it's just different. Like he, like I said, he couldn't go outside for recess we just kind of had our own little thing. Um, and, you know, if they, I think if they knew, if, I think if more of them knew all the video game systems he had, they might've come around a little more often, um, you know, at that age. Um, but, but yeah, he, uh, it was just, it was just our own little thing. It was like, this is Chris and Michael. This is what they do. And, you know, they're friends and Chris helps Michael with his schoolwork. He carries his books between classes and, you know, that's just kind of how it was. That's how everybody in the school kind of knew it. Um, and it was fine. Like, I would, I would help him with his work. Um, sometimes he would just want me to just write the answers in for him. Um, <laughs> you know, cheating a little bit. Um, right. So that happened. Not on tests, but, like, homework and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so, so we were – he was my best friend growing up. Um, okay. I didn't really have too many other friends. Um, we get to sixth grade um, and for the first half of the year, things were fine. Um, And then about halfway through sixth grade, uh, Mike doesn't come to school that much anymore. Um, Now, how far away did he live from you? Did you, he lived, I would say eight to 10 minutes. Okay. Um, And you had each other's phone numbers. Would you guys ever talk? We never, we never, we never really talked on the phone. We didn't talk on the phone that much. And if we did, it was just to like arrange like 
hey, can I come over today to, you know, come hang out and play video games? And they would be very quick conversations. We didn't really so talk how, on the phone that much. Was it, how long was it that he wasn't coming to school before you, like, reached out to him to figure out what was going on? Or did you have an idea that something was um, wrong? No, um, we did not. Um, and this is where being young and not being told everything that's going on comes into play. Right. So he was out for like weeks at a time mm-hmm. and then he would come back uh, every so often. Um, and he'd come back for maybe a couple days or a week or two and then he would go away again and he wouldn't be in school. Um, so it was, it was tough. Um, we didn't know what was going on. We just assumed that, you know, maybe he's feeling sick. He's just not feeling himself. That's kind of, it, it wasn't all that unusual for him to miss like days at a time of school. That, uh, ha- okay. that happened okay. from time to time. But when he, when he came years. back for those few days, would you like ask him what was going on? And he, and yeah, yeah, everybody would kind of, you know, say, Hey Mike, how you doing? And he would say, I'm fine. You know, everything's fine. You know, nothing, nothing was all that unusual. Um, but then, uh, you know, over the summer, I didn't really talk to him that much or hang, hang out with him that much over that summer. Um, and then seventh grade begins and Michael just isn't there. I think he was there maybe very early on seventh grade, but he never showed up. Um, right. So reading between the lines, his cancer came back and he's been going to therapy and eventually, and eventually, eventually, yes, eventually, okay they finally told us what was going on and it was, and also now keep in mind that at this time in seventh grade, and this is why I mentioned this earlier, my sister is now teaching at my grade school. So she is now involved in the faculty and knows what's going on. So now I have a little more information because she knows how close I was with Michael. So she, yeah, she was telling me maybe a little more, than than the other kids had known. Um, gotcha. Okay. So, at this point in time, we knew Michael's cancer had come back. Um, so you know, it's just like, I I guess I, I didn't talk to him during this time. You know, at the, at this point in time, it's like his family's taking care of him, and like they're controlling like you know different things. Um, you know, uh, you know, his, just his day-to-day life. Like his grandfather is obviously very involved. I think his mother as well. Um, did did you reach out or were you just told like, don't No, I'm I'm a, I'm a 13 year old kid. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just doing what I'm told. Um, right. And and I'll, and I'll, and I'll revisit this a little later in the story. Um, this, this idea of not really having any contact with him. Um, so it's it, it turns from September to October, nothing. And then October, November, you know, nothing. And then I just remember, I remember this vividly. One day, um, the priest at the church that our school, one of the churches that our school was affiliated with, um, our school is affiliated with seven churches, but there was one like on the campus of the school. Mm-hmm. And he just, his name was Father Hitchko. And uh, he came in the class in the morning. Um, he was wearing a hat. He puts his hat down on the desk. And he delivered the news to us that Michael had passed away. Right. 
and the cancer had come back and and Michael didn't make it. They tried, they were treating him and you know, it just it just didn't it just didn't work out. And you know, that date was November 15th, uh 1999. So that date always has a special yeah, small. I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm some yeah. I'm sorry that you to deal with that, especially because as a as a, uh-huh. as a it, it, it's it's what's difficult is knowing what you know now, and obviously you I'm sure you wish that you could have you would have done things differently if if you had even been led to understand what was happening, but like you that that opportunity was never given to you. Right. We didn't know how serious it was. Nobody knew how serious it was. Um, They had the funeral a few days later. Um, I was inconsolable. (laughs) You know, I was crying during it. I sat by my sister during the funeral. I think my parents were even there. Like my dad took the day off of school. My mom took the day off of work to make sure they were there. Um, It was just tough. It was just very tough. Do you... Do you, I don't want to phrase this the wrong way. Do you feel guilty for not, for not, and again, because you, you're, you're a child, you don't know any better, but do you, do I, you, I do, don't, do you hold I don't that? I feel guilty. I don't okay. feel guilty. So I'll flash forward in this story. Um, okay. It's, uh, it's five years later um, and I'm the valedictorian of my high school class. Okay. And I have to give a speech at graduation. And um, I decided to make my speech about uh, two things. I decided to make it about my father, who had just been fired as the basketball coach at my school, Hmm. um, at my high school. And I decided to make the other half of the speech about Michael. Okay. And I reached out to his grandfather, and I tell him, hey, um, I'm graduating high school. Um, I'm valedictorian. I'm giving a speech. And I'm going to be talking about Michael in this speech. I would love it if you would come. And he did. Okay. I gave the speech. <clears throat> Sorry. Hang on a second here. I got to <clears throat> gather myself. <laughs> it's okay. I didn't think I would start crying. Um, but, uh <clears throat> I give the speech. Everybody liked the speech. Um, I was really happy with it. Was and your grand... was the speech exactly. pre-approved? Yes, the speech okay. was pre-approved so by they, the teachers. So they yes. so they knew they they knew the subject matter you were talking about. Okay. Yes, yes, they okay. knew what I was going to be talking about. I, I don't think they were as worried about the part about Michael as they were worried about the part about my father. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, I think <laughs> yeah, I think they were a little more worried about that part. Um, but I give the speech and Michael's grandfather comes up to me, uh, after the speech and, and he says, he says, you know, Chris, he's like, I really wish we had brought you around before he passed. Um, and you know, he's like, I'm sorry that we never did that. Um, so (sighs) that meant a lot. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's a uh, you're I'm um, it's <clears throat> That's a very emotional moment. Yeah, it was. Thank you for sharing that. 
Why don't we take a break? <laughs> sure, let's take you want to take a break? Yeah, let's take a break. Okay. Okay, and we're we're back. Um got a little dusty in here for a minute. Yeah, needed needed to take a couple minutes and kind of recompose. <laughs> yes, yes. Um so uh yeah, I did not know I would be getting uh that emotional talking about Michael. It's been been almost uh I mean it's nineteen years now. Um, yeah. but you know, it still kinda hits home. You, um, but yeah, so 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 that that meant a lot. Um, his grandfather saying, "I wish we had," because yeah. I actually me- I actually mentioned in the speech that I didn't get to say goodbye to Michael, right? And I think that was the the part that hit home for him. Yeah. Um, and so that's why he said came up to me afterwards and said, "I wish we had, you know, at least let you visit a couple times um, before." Yeah, because he, I, before I could passed away. I, I could see how you know. It, you know, it, within your family unit, you think like, okay, this is this is affecting us, but you don't necessarily go to think about, okay, this is affecting, this could affect other people that he knew. Like, you, you, they just, it probably never even occurred to them. Right, right, yeah. and and I think the thing with me and why maybe I never reached out was because we never knew the severity of just how, right, just how serious it was that it actually was going to kill him. Yeah, they, um, they never made that clear. And, and it's they like, never on, made they never right, they never made that clear just how bad it was. And on the one hand, you can understand, right, because you're you know, you're young and maybe you wouldn't understand but on the other hand, that's not really they that that's not their decision to make. Like they withheld that from you. They they stole that opportunity from you to say goodbye. You know, and I don't I don't, I don't want that, I'm I'm not, not mad I'm not, at anybody. No, 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 yeah. I'm um, not trying to paint that neg- negative light. They yeah. I, I don't believe that anybody goes to that situation. You know, they're 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 not in the clear clearest headspace to be able to like to have that sight to, to think about that. So I, I'm yeah. I'm not trying to paint them negatively. I just it's it's you know yeah having, I don't having think, uh, I just I just think you know when adults deal with kids in those situations they just don't think that kids can handle the brunt of yeah the reality of the situation. So they try to hide everybody from it. And um, I, you know. I, I understand that, but at the same time, I just, I, I, and to be fair, I haven't been faced with that decision yet, but like, for example, with, with, mm-hmm. with Cameron, I, I, I will always make sure I do my best to make sure that he understands. And I guess, you know, something happened recently where um, he, there was one, an exchange happened between me and him and, and Kat and, like I saw this, like I saw his brain working, and I saw him like having recognition over something that like he could have been sad over, but he wasn't. And so, mm-hmm. like, okay, if my eighteen-month-old can do that, then why can't you know a thirteen-year-old can do that? So I, I and maybe it's just it's time of protective, right? We're now, like you said, we're basically twenty years later. Things are different, but yeah, like I I, I hope that what if, if it got you know God forbid that situation ever happens within within uh my purview that i can i can have the foresight to to be completely truthful with him and yeah you know exactly and you know it's actually something that i think has you know just talking about it now has affected me in different parts of my life because one of the things that i don't like um having uh happened to me is being like left out of the loop of something or not having information like for instance a few years ago uh two years ago my father had prostate cancer right um and 
he didn't tell anybody um, for about two months until after his diagnosis. I didn't know about it for two months. And I was really ticked off because my my one of my sisters knew about it. And I remember there being like a vague like text message from her about like something to do with my father. And I'm like, what's going on with my dad? And so like I asked him about it like the next day on the phone. And he like I said, oh, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. And then I get home for Christmas and he's like, oh, by the way, I have prostate cancer. And I'm like, I was really, I was really ticked off. I was, I was really mad yeah. that they, that they didn't Yeah, because me. I mean, you're, you're, you're a full on adult. Like, right. I'm not a kid anymore. I'm, I was at the time 29 years old. Like, you know, I, I feel like that's a very much a generational thing where, mm-hmm. you know, our, our parents' generation just sweeps stuff under the rug and, you know, put a brave face on. And it's like, I, I feel I, I do feel to a degree our generation. And I, I don't know if you want to call it millennials or Gen X or whatever it is, but I do feel like the, the ability to show emotion is OK. Yeah. Right. As a as a. As as your father, you know your father as growing up, it, it was a tough, be a tough man, you know. So yes. I'm, sure, I'm sure that's where that comes from. But at the same time, like I I can understand why you were upset. Obviously, like there's yeah. there's no there's no, you know. I, I obviously I, I it seems like he's come through it and he's still. Yes. No. No. He's fine now. Um, they caught it very early. Um, he okay. went underwent treatments, um, and he is 100 percent cancer free today. So. Okay. It all worked out. Um, he underwent. Uh, there's a couple different slight detour. A couple different treatment options you can have for prostate cancer. I believe okay. one of them is you can remove the prostate um, right. or undergo surgery. He did not want to do that. Um, right. The other thing is actually you just monitor it um, and like manage it. Oddly enough, and kind of live with the cancer. Why would um, you do that? Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, because it's a very slow moving cancer. Right. Um, and so as long as it never gets like out of control, like you're okay, apparently, um, I admit that maybe the doctors of our group know more about this than I do, but he opted for radiation treatment, um, and kind of just put up with a, a couple rounds of radiation treatments, but he would have all his for lack of a better term, bits and pieces at the end of the process. Right. Um, so, and that killed the cancer. So that's what he opted for. Okay. Did he lose his hair at all for the chemo? No. Did he, or no, he, he, did did, he didn't actually go nope. through chemo or? He didn't go through chemo. It was just radiation. No chemo. Got radiation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, so he's you, fine now. You know, you, you just said something a few minutes ago about how one of the things that's come out of this is the fact that, you know, you don't like me out of the loop. You, you like to have information. Mm-hmm. I, I I would posit that, un, you know, subconsciously, maybe that's one of the things that helped steer you towards journalism, because journalism is all about having the information and being in the know. Maybe, you know, maybe that's true. That that could that could be true. Absolutely. OK. Um, do you do you still talk with Michael's family ever? Do you ever see them? Your grandfather? I know, I know, I know it's been a while, but have it's you, been a there... while. The last time I exchanged emails with his grandfather was probably three or four years ago. Um, yeah, if maybe longer than that, I'm not sure. Um, so yeah, I it's been a while. Maybe I should try to reach back out to him. 
reach out to him, let him know about the podcast. Yeah. Have him. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, no, I, I know. I'm, 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 yeah. I'm just, I'm just messing with you. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, have you ever thought about like, um, you know, a, a memorial for him or anything that you would want to do on? on there, you know, there is honor? a memorial. There is a memorial for him. Um, okay. At um, at my old grade school, there is a. Uh, it's still there to this day. Um, there's a statue of Mary that they placed um, on the grounds of the school in his honor, with a little, with a little plaque uh, commemorating it, uh, commemorating him. Um, so that's that's like a little little kind of grotto area, right? And that's in honor of him. Okay, well that, that's nice. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever visited it or been there recently? I have not been there recently, but every time when I go home, I I, I drive by the school inevitably, and I I always you look think about to, I always just look to make sure that it's there. Yeah, and it's still there. So good. I'm glad it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that was. So that was our addendum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my, well, I, I chat. It is. I, I also wanted to touch on. You know, it's been a couple of weeks now since you've been on the the Timberwolves beat. How have things changed? I know you had a, a crazy game last night that you had to cover. Um, obviously, you had you still have all the Jimmy Butler stuff going on. How how are you feeling now that you've got your, your sea legs under you? Uh, well, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that they're under me yet. Um, but they, I don't know, it's just been the most hectic thing I've ever covered. And it's, it's, it, it just occupies your life and not in a good way. Um, I, I, I'm not really enjoying it too much right now. Um, this is the most stressful thing I've ever covered. Um, right. and uh, it's just, it's everything that's not great about this profession and it's just all been hitting me in the first month on the job. So I have right. not been, I have not been liking it too much, but and, uh, I don't know, it's just, it's just hasn't been fun. Ideal, ideally, right. This stuff settles down or comes to a resolution and then you're able to kind of get into an actual flow and hopefully this doesn't come back up for this kind of thing doesn't happen again. Yeah, that's the that's the hope. Um, but the thing is now, he's on the team, and the owner has said that they will trade him eventually, but that might not happen until the trade deadline in February. So right. this could be hanging over you know, our heads for the next four months. And can he um, choose not to play, or like, what's the scenarios there? What What are the options? I mean, he can't. He can't really choose not to play. That's that's. If he's healthy, he really should play. I mean, he's got a contract, right? Right, but like, I mean, can he give like half effort? You know, or he could. He fake, can he fake an injury? He could, but that's not going to help them trade him if he gives half effort. Because then, what team is going to want to trade for him? Right, right. So it behooves him to just go out there and play as hard as he can. Yeah. Try to be a good teammate for the next few weeks or months, and hopefully, they find a deal. Right. Okay. Um, so they they seem to have reached an understanding, and so maybe things will be a little calm. Excuse me, a little calmer. Where the owner and he had a chat last week, and basically came to this agreement that the owner is going to keep working to get a trade and instruct you know Thibodeau in the front office to get a trade, and as long as Butler you know is a good teammate and plays hard, they will still honor his trade request. So um, is that common for the player to have direct contact with the owner and have that kind of basically have him going over Thibodeau's 
I mean, obviously, I know, I know Thibodeau's in a unique position, being both the coach and the the manager. But is it is that um, is that unheard of for that kind of thing to happen, where basically Thibodeau gets cut out of the deal, and it's basically whatever the owner and when, the when player it come, work when out. It, when it comes to these big uh, deals like this, um, it's not that uncommon for the owners to get involved. Now, the owners are not like Glenn Taylor, the owner of the Timberwolves, also owns our newspaper, um, is not like calling other GMs or fielding these offers or making the negotiations. He leaves that up to Thibodeau and the GM, Scott Layden. Right. So it's not as if he's in the day-to-day negotiations. Taylor has just kind of set the tone of like, this is what we're going to do as an organization. We are going to trade him. You guys look to make a trade. Um, You know, this is what, this is what we're going to do. Gotcha. So ownership, ownership does get involved when it comes to like, big players and big money contracts like right. uh, with certain guys. What do you think he can actually command in a trade in terms of like what kind of capital they can get back? It all depends. Um, you know, if I think they have their eye on uh, eventually trading him to Miami and getting this young guard, Josh Richardson uh, from the heat, who's kind of like Jimmy Butler light in a way. Um, and maybe that he can develop into a Jimmy Butler caliber of player. Right. And also it looks like they're going to want at least another piece and some sort of picks, like a first round pick. So Butler can demand a lot on the, command a lot on the trade market. Um, But you'd rather, it's like a fantasy football trade. It's like, you'd rather have the one elite guy most times than you would the other pieces. Gotcha. Yeah, because yeah. you don't know what's going to happen. Right. Um, what was I going to ask? Oh, um, blah, 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 blah. Do you... Shoot, I was just, I was just thinking of a question I, was gonna, I wanted to ask. Um, oh, my God, I'm blanking now. And I think it was on this topic. I just can't remember. I'm sorry. I have, uh, I have blanked the chat with Chaz. Yeah, geez. No, I, like, which, I was thinking the question, and then, but I want to make sure I was listening to you. And uh-huh. then I, I, forgot, I forgot what I wanted to ask. Um, okay, hold on. We were talking about we were talking about um, what you can get for them. We were mm-hmm. talking about uh, the first rounds. Kind of a bitch. Um, yeah, maybe it'll come back to you. Yeah, maybe. Um, all right. Um, but it was, it was it was there was more topic I wanted to talk about, not just this. God damn it! The that reporting of it. The uh, the. Uh... <sighs> The, the season, how that's going. Uh, not fantasy football. No. Uh, God damn. Okay. Uh, we may have to do another addendum to this addendum <laughs> if, I think of, if I think of it. Because I don't think I was thinking questions related to Jimmy Butler. And, and... Questions related to reporting in general? <sighs> I can't Minis- remember. Life in Minnesota? I can't remember. Oh, I feel so stupid now. All right, let's 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 cut it there. Um, I okay. we, we you know we're, we've still got a couple of weeks, so uh, if I if I if I can think of it, we'll we'll get back on the phone and we'll we'll chat about it. Um, and okay. I'll, I'll cut this. I'll, I'll cut it in. All right. That All works. right. But but for the time being, um, thank you for this um, this extra little bit. I know obviously it's not easy to talk about, so I definitely appreciate your you know your your uh, your courage and bringing it up and talking about it. I wouldn't say um, courage. Uh, nah, 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 not courage. But but it's it was any, any it, time, I, it was hard to okay. talk about than I thought. I'll say that. <laughs> I, 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 I here, here's why I say it's it's courage. Anytime a person willingly 
opens up about a topic that has such strong emotions for them, mm-hmm. they're they're giving themselves they're giving a piece of themselves to everybody that could listen to this. So I I would still say that that there is it takes courage to do that. So I realize maybe maybe you don't see it that way, but for for me being on this end, you know, for talking about that, which is something that you that you can easily not talk about or talk about in a different light or talk about very little. Um, you know, the, the, the way you mm-hmm. opened up the breath that you opened up, I think that takes courage. So oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, enjoy the rest of your night. Let's get back to watching the, the chiefs freaking destroy cold crap. This team's amazing. And Kareem hunt making me regret this trade more and just, more <laughs> every a, game. Just a little bit. Just right? Unbelievable. Jesus Christ. It's, yeah, it's I'm, horrible. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what are you gonna do? I probably still wouldn't have won this week anyway, but you never know. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll see you next time on Chat with Chaz, unless we do another addendum, in which case I'll be back on in like five seconds. So we'll see you soon, maybe. All right. Bye. Bye.